Hello, and welcome to Girls Gone Canon, A Song of Ice and Fire, Episode 103, A Dance with Dragons, The Sacrifice, featuring our good friend Wendy, who is the sacrifice today. I am one of your hosts, Chloe. And I am another one of your hosts, Eliana. Yes, today we will be sacrificing Wendy. Wendy, do you have any last words? Ed, fetch me a block. I don't know. <laughs> My instinct is to go just uh, shit, piss, fuck, cut, cocksucker, motherfucker, and tits. But I love it. I think that is solid, too. And you know what? We will get some last words from another character today in this chapter that I think we're going to highlight. So think about that for now. But Wendy, we are so glad to have you on. Thanks for coming on. Uh, you might know Wendy from Twitter, the Wendy Nerd, or over on her Tumblr, where she wrote a ton of A Song of Ice and Fire character analysis on Sansa and Catelyn and uh, the Stark girls in general, the Stark kids, wendynerdwrites.tumblr.com. And I hear, Wendy, you are getting into Twitch now as well. Twitch.tv slash wendynerd. I am starting to stream, play Sims 4, streaming CK2. I'm going to be doing the actual The Song of Ice and Fire mod. I'm not doing CK3 right now because I tried CK3 for about two hours and I got really bored of it because you can't do as much with CK3 as you could CK2. So I'm just waiting for some expansions to come out. I also stream um, Arkham City and uh, Vampire the Masquerade Blood uh, Lines. Bloodlines 2 is going to come out at some point. Oh, also I'm, play I'm streaming Skyrim as well. So Monday, Tuesday, and Friday evenings are what my schedule roughly is right now. Yeah, we'll have to drop a link there for sure. I've been watching a lot of Twitch streams we've been playing a lot of video games i've been very deeply into a stardew valley play two plays actually i have two plays two? at once now it's getting very crazy i have two husbands right now i am juggling oh good for you thank you juggling husbands on my farm yeah i am going great so i'm really excited to watch you play some sims right now i have a nice little jewish family called the silverman levens oh one of them is a movie star the other oh. one is an ace journalist and they've got a daughter named rose in CK2, I usually play, shockingly enough, as Sansa. So if you're a huge Sansa fan and you just want to see her take over everything and reform religions and make money and collect artifacts, then hit me up. I love the ASWAF mod for CK2. It is a blast. I had a good Sansa play for a while. It is so good. More fun than regular, in my opinion. Just saying. There's a Season 8 submod that came out, but it does not work for me. So I've just been playing from, like, the Winds of Winter submod. So. Well. You know who else is also playing something along with the CK2 mod? Some Something that it is also, but within the confines of the story, right? Trying to get all the territories of Westeros? No. No? I, are you talking about Stannis? Yeah. But, you know, we're going to look at Stannis from a different angle. Right now we're looking at Stannis from Asha's POV. But maybe we'll look at Stannis from another POV in our, as we announce, a next, a next POV. Uh, wait. Are you talking about a new point of view on Girls Gone Canon? Why, yes, yes, you have to be, because this is the last published Asha chapter currently. Not that, counting It an wasn't excerpt. even technically an excerpt. <laughs> anything is an excerpt. If you don't feed a dog for years, anything is an effing excerpt. Eliana, okay? <laughs> that might not even... When people are hungry, they'll eat anything, Eliana. We're going to talk about that this chapter, too. It might not even end up in the books. You know, he could have deleted it from Wordstar since then. But yes, we do have a new POV. Chloe, do you want to tell us who, who we might be sailing along with next? You want me to tell everyone to come sail away with us and Davos Seaworth on Girls Gone Canon mm. next. You guys seem to be having a theme right now of, like, people who are sane in a world gone mad. Those are the characters that you're covering these days. <laughs> kind of. 
Maybe. I know that maybe the Ario Hota might not stay sane for long. I'm sure he's gonna break or bend soon, but... No, he's not. Ari's, Ari's Oakheart, that boy, he nutted once, and then he couldn't ever, couldn't live after that. Ever again. <sighs> but Ashen and Davos is exciting. I think uh, both are great commanders at sea. And I think they both offer really interesting perspectives on Stannis. So going from how we've seen Stannis during Asha is going to be a big flip going to Davos. Yeah, but we're not going to spend all of Davos only talking about Stannis. So we kind of can't get away from it because that's like a big part of literally Davos' whole storyline. We're not going to only talk about Stannis in this chapter. But I thought it was a good segue. (laughs) Someone clap for me. (laughs) Yeah, no, uh, are you guys ready to make some make my boyfriend angry? Like, he'll live. <laughs> I think if you're listening to this podcast, you yeah. know our opinion on Stannis. I think that Asha's point of view is a lot different than what we've seen with Davos's point of view. And I think that the other important thing is how we're going to see Stannis's relationship to Davos, but it's still through Davos's eyes. Not, we don't really focus on uh, Stannis having, you know, rights as a person in the story, as much, in my opinion. (laughs) We focus on Davos. Davos existing in the story. So I'm excited for that. That's what I'm excited to see, is the way that Davos views him and the things in Davos' life uh, kind of that have brought him to that. We're going to spend a little time talking about Stannis' conscience, right? And as we get into that today, it won't quite be as complex as when we get into it with Davos. And that's an interesting relationship. It really is. I don't think in the end that both will be near each other when Stannis meets his demise. That will be a big component, right, of Stannis probably going down. So we'll talk about all that and more soon. It'll be a nice little parallel, too, with another character that shows up, with a character that shows up in, in this chapter when that happens. Yes. Well, let's get into it. Let's start first with our lightning round, which is where we summarize and speed through what we missed. I'm just isolating a couple chapters today. So we start with Eliana. Yes, Eliana's POV chapter. <laughs> <laughs> woof, 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 woof. Oh, that's ghost. It's not, it's not wrong. Uh, but we are actually starting off with a different POV, a, a ghost in Winterfell. That is also a wolf, though. Uh, but the other ghost in Winterfell. Mysterious murders continue in the north. An Abel's washing woman brings Reek to meet Abel at last. Theon won. Theon and Jane take a leap to faith. And the Iron Suitor. Mokura shows up on Victorian's trip to Marine, and he offers him a hand. <laughs> and that brings us from my POV over to Wendy's sacrifice. That's <laughs> it, recovering. Um, but actually, the, the this sacrifice. Osh's chapter. Tensions between the North and South are rising at an incredible speed in Stannis' camp, and cannibals are given to R'hllor amidst the northern blizzard. Asha is spared a sacrifice for now, but by chapter's end, a new player with King's Blood enters the camp. I thought you'd like that. And remembers I was really excited. His name. I was like, this is Eliana's favorite thing. the best part of the, the whole book. story. Honestly, <laughs> it actually, no, the whole story, I think, maybe. It's one of my top <laughs> five favorite moments in the entirety of A Song of Ice and Fire. We'll talk about Theon and the Winds of Winter toward the end of the episode, I think, because we'll uh, it'll give people a chance to bow out on any major spoilers, right? But uh, I, I imagine most people have caved and read Theon 1, hopefully, by now. It's a very good chapter, but I was reading it today and I got a little misty-eyed. I was like, when you get towards the end, oh, God. 
God. We'll talk about it later. It's technically in. It's technically published with Dance with Dragons, right? At the end of yeah, the Yeah, that was the first one, right? So it doesn't matter. Everyone should have read that. I consider it a Dance with Dragons. I mean, I didn't. I didn't read it till like years later, but yeah. We've already discussed that before, yeah. but... Yes, yes. Okay, well, let's jump on in. I know, Wendy, you wanted to talk about some of the big thematic notes in this chapter, so take it away. Artifice, zombies, cultural comparisons, and toughness. Oh my. Like, those are some of the things that I want to go in. Everybody's a zombie. Uh, everybody thinks that they're tougher than they are and pretends to be tougher than they are, including our point of view character. Got a lot of comparisons on what the Northerners, particularly, and the Ironborn have in common, what they don't, which I'll go in there and then go into that. And yeah, Artifice, everyone's just fronting. Everyone's full of shit. The Starks are fetish objects at this point. By A Dance of Dragons, the Starks aren't even the Starks. None of the Starks are the Starks. Arya's across the sea. Bran is slowly becoming a tree. I'm just generalizing. Sansa is now Peter Dalish's daughter. There, I, I gave I threw you one that's also way too simplistic and kind of shitty. Uh, you know, John is the Lord Commander, and also spoilers, dead. I guess. <laughs> and you know, no, none of the Starks are the Starks, and the only person with the name Arya Stark is in fact Jane Poole. This and everybody, yeah, the Starks are fetish objects. They're not even real. They're not even real anymore, really. Yeah, State of the Union, not great. Not looking great on the night of your sacrifice, Wendy. Yeah, but when we when we burn Wendy, uh, maybe things will you get know? better. Oh my god. <laughs> maybe. Yes, the red maybe. god. I don't know. Uh, I'm going to sacrifice my dignity for this joke. As we get to the actual sacrifice that is not Wendy, I am just putting that out there in an all serious tone about the episode right now. We are not burning our friend. Uh, are you going to try and say that I'm Asha? Greyjoy, because I'm okay with that. <laughs> no, you're one of the Peacebury men. No, no, you would have been the weeping, dying boy. Is actually yeah. what we were saying. I know, but you're the sacrifice, Wendy. Yeah, but... that's what we've been saying. Okay, anyways, anyways, but we're saying right now know, for all, you're not the sacrifice, Wendy. You could, you could maybe be Asha for now. Wendy has rights. Wendy writes. <laughs> Allie Mormont is someone else who I think has rights. We're going to talk about her in this story, and we open the chapter with her and Asha actually talking to each other. Uh, and Allie is telling Asha she does not want to watch these men be burnt. She's like, you don't want to see this. And Asha's like, I'm going to, though. And she thinks Asha Greyjoy was the Kraken's daughter, not some pampered maiden who could not bear to look at ugliness. I thought that the language here was really interesting, especially with the pampered maiden part, because we're going to see a lot more about what this means to not turn away from ugliness and stare at the death, uh, these executions a little later in this chapter. But Asha's insistence on watching these executions feels, again, reminiscent of the Starks, not as the symbol, but of the story that we've experienced through them. Like Bran at the very, 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 very beginning of A Song of Ice and Fire being warned by John, don't look away, you have to watch this man be beheaded owing it to look them in the eyes, but also, of course, Sansa during the hand's tourney, watching Sir Hugh of the Vale die and not looking away, but also later when she's forced to watch her own father's beheading, uh, that this thing that's much closer, more visceral. She's thinking this while interacting with Ali Mormont. Like, it's not like, the Mormonts are literally, sh- well, not literally, but they're she-bears. Like, what what about Ali Mormont is pam- pampered? It's really good fortune, like, just how bad this gets. Just in case she didn't think things going on in Westeros, and particularly the North, were gruesome and bleak enough? Well, here we go. <laughs> like, in a few seconds, she's actually watching it, and she's like, oh, wait, maybe I do want to look away. I kind of want to look away now. Oh, my gosh. It's something interesting George is playing on, I think, especially with 
Alisane's character. Like, it's something with the prejudices Asha and Alisane have against each other, right? Asha and Alisane both in the last chapter talk to each other about like, oh, well, you're a squid and you're a traitor and oh, well, you're a bear. Uh, and Asha's people breathed and raided here. Asha can't make that right. She can't make decades and years and centuries of like horrible things happening to these people right. But it also isn't, well... I would say it isn't, but Asha's also led raids that have probably affected them in her time. Uh, their culture has, unfortunately, not been great to these people. So it's a learning experience. And I think it's interesting that by this chapter, by the time we land here, uh, all day people have been trying to fish and they're starving and they're just men, right? Everyone's just men now. You're all men. You're just a number. Except for the snow. fish. Yeah, there's no fish. Uh, Allie's like, I don't want to see this. I don't want to see people die. But she's still this warrior woman. And she's still a strong woman. And I think how it's incorporated is really interesting. You brought up Sansa earlier. And like, you know, people think of her as the pampered maiden. And she looked death right in the face. So it's not like this is biases, right? And it's so funny because Alisane and Asha have so much in common, too. They they have more in common than some of these men have, right? Because you have Godri Faring, who's controlling this camp right now. Uh, Alisane is like, please just don't watch this, Asha, so that I don't have to watch it, because I have to be wherever you are. I have to guard you right now. And Godri Faring is setting up everything, and he's telling the men that are watching, he's like, ah, the Lord of Light protects you, and giving them this big speech about how they need to do this setup to burn these four men, as if it's some big religious spectacle that's about to happen but as we know everyone is just they're all just men that are trying to live in this horrible blizzard right now they're kind of sucking at it too (laughs) as we find out like and because and i think part of it is also like because a lot of these guys um are in fact southerners and then there's also the separation between the northern side we'll get into that later i'm sorry i'm getting ahead and you know back to the idea of the looking of a maiden i I feel like i didn't bring this up and i feel like it's wrong of me to not bring it up on my own podcast like how could you say something and not bring up sandor sansa looking at sandor you know i mean he's a horrific beast of a fire burnt thing so similar thought there as far as maidens like settle down asha not all women okay god (laughs) asha i'm not like other girls in fact, I don't think there is a single female character who looks away from death when they're confronted with it in this series. We get some more from Ardos, Flint, and Big Bucket Bull. Uh, glad to see them back in the plot. They're scoffing about this southern god. They're like, the old gods rule here. It's the old gods being angry for what you've done. Uh, there's the line from Big Bucket Bull that I love. He says, Red Ralu means nothing here. You'll only make the old gods angry. They're watching from their island. There's a subconscious acceptance of that, despite what uh, Stannis and his men say to the contrary. That's in part, I think, why they're cutting the eyes of the old gods out, even if they don't even completely realize it. Whether they realize it or not, I think it's like, you know, they just think they're doing it because they're cutting down icons of the unbelievers, just like they did with the icons of the Seven. Yeah, they're angry. Absolutely. And, you know, trying to sort of lessen and impose their own culture on the northern on the northerners, right? It's something that uh, has been respected for a long time within Westeros, that there are very many different religions and cultures. I will say it's kind of funny, though, the idea that, like, the old gods would be angry, according to Big Bucket Bull, because I'm like, I don't know, technically Bran's, like, one of the old gods right now, and I don't know that he'd be, like, he'd definitely be upset at the burnings, but I don't know that he'd be, like, angry and offended that it was in the name of another god. He would just be angry maybe that it was happening at all, but 
he'd also be like, I don't know, whatever. Um, at the moment, like, uh, why is this happening? But something that I think the story also kind of calls attention to later on in this very same book in A Dance with Dragons in Bran's chapters is that we are currently being primed or being positioned through the perspective of Asha, who is a non-believer, right? To, and John, to see the worshippers of the Red God as worse than uh, these POV characters who aren't bought into R'hllor's religion as worse simply for the practice of sacrificing people, which, yes, is bad. We've said that several times throughout this podcast. Yet we come to realize as Bran's own chapters and story deepens that maybe this is actually something that isn't so easy to cast judgment upon either because it seems that the sacrificing the old gods was also uh, part of their own culture and religion as well when he starts going way, 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 way back into the Weirwoods. All pretty bad. And it was, it's so interesting that, like, they're going to cast judgment, but, like, Rolar is a god, a, like, a fire god. I know he's the Lord of Light, but he's, like, his main instrument is fire. And right now, uh, we know that the old gods have these, like, deep connections to the others. It's really, like, ultimately, both of these forms are pretty destructive to humanity. And in fact, the old gods very likely awakened the uh, threat, the oldest threat that is coming back now. And it's, and Roller's instrument, or his worshippers' instrument is fire, which will be the element that come, that like combats that. So it's like really interesting where you got this like complicated back and forth of like what's worse and how both sides kill people horribly, but one of them is creating an overarching man destroying threat. Yeah. Even though the eyes are being torn out and even though violence is being done unto it, like fire consumes, ice preserves, right? And what we see, we're going to get into some of the talk of, in a second, frozen blood. Uh, this has some really interesting language, basically, about the Weirwoods. They're sitting at this crofter's village uh, and there's Weirwoods, right? And with that blood flowing, Asha calls it frozen blood. And that is what it looks like it looks like blood, but like it seems like they're all sacrificing to some sort of power, right? And I think that's the bigger thing is that like Bran doesn't mishandle it or understand it. He doesn't, for example, he doesn't understand what he's doing, which I think Eliana can definitely speak to in a second. Um, but it's power. They're all trying to sacrifice for power, but sometimes it's not really this majestic power, like this godly power. As we learn later, some of these men think they're gods and claim they're gods but they just want to take land like that's what they want they want power and control and land that's not exactly a godly power right yeah i mean bran as you said it's complicated because he's inflicting pain on someone else in the, through the power that uh, ends up being called the old gods right by skin changing into hodor and we see that this idea of sacrifice doesn't just have to be death, right? You can sacrifice someone else and put your own needs above theirs uh, without having to kill them. And and Hodor reacts so poorly when Bran's skin changes into them. So it, it, it kind of makes you question, is it R'hllor that's so bad? Is it the old gods are good? Or is it the people and what they're willing to do in the name of that religion that is more of what's being discussed here and more of what we should be questioning. There's a quote that Asha thinks to herself, It is only sap, she told herself, the red sap that flows inside these weirwoods, but her eyes were unconvinced. Seeing was believing, and what they saw was frozen blood. A lot of the language here reminds me of Theon 5 back in Clash when he's on the run. 
Mercy, he sobbed, from behind came a shuddering howl that curdled his blood. Mercy, mercy, when he glanced back over his shoulder, he saw them coming, great wolves the size of horses with the heads of small children. Oh, mercy, mercy, blood dripped from their mouths, black as pitch, burning holes into the snow where it fell. Every stride brought them closer. Theon tried to run faster, but his legs would not obey. The trees all had faces, and they were laughing at him, laughing, and the howl came again. He could smell the hot breath of the beasts behind him, a stink of brimstone and corruption. Uh, the old gods definitely do feel angry here. I know that the jo it was more of a jest, right? Not really a jest, but it was more like, oh, the gods are angry. You southerners really ticked them off. It's their, their punishment. This chapter actually comes after a more recent reference, I guess, to Frozen Blood, too, that involves Melisandre, right? Melisandre said to John, Ice, daggers in the dark, blood frozen red and hard, and naked steel. We're going to get into some more Bran stuff way later on, because as we learn from Theon in The Winds of Winter, Bran is kind of there, and it's confirmed from him hanging over the story, whether it's mist hanging over the story, or trees, or ravens quirking. The southern men and northern men begin to blame the snow on each other and each other's gods, and are interrupted by Godric commanding Clayton to bring forward the sacrifice! Here I am! <laughs> Here she is! <laughs> she's got king's blood. That's why she's wearing a crown today as we record this episode. You yeah. may, I don't know if uh, we brought this up at the beginning of the episode. Uh, oh, I no, thought we you didn't. were taking it off to make yourself less conspicuous as a sacrifice just now. <laughs> no, no, I want everyone to know. If I'm going to be sacrificed, I want everybody to know why, okay? Like, that's just... <laughs> it's your king's blood. It so someone else who might one day be a sacrifice is Asha, and we get her take on those who are doing the sacrificing. Asha did not like Sir Clayton, where Faring seemed fierce in his devotion to his red god, Suggs was simply cruel. She had seen him at the night fires, watching his lips parted and his <laughs> eyes avid. It is not the god he loves, it is the flames, she concluded. He's basically the tickler. That's interesting. Yeah. yeah. Stannis has his own tickler. Yeah. I mean, I think that the, there's definitely attractive stuff about Stannis, right? There's Stannis, it, it's a tragic character. I mean, it is a very tragic story. People that don't believe it's a tragic story are the ones that are fooling themselves, and that's the problem. But, like, when you do the math, it all kind of adds up, especially seeing it from this point of view from Asha. Suggs is garbage. There is nothing redeeming about this guy except his ability to fight, Asha later notes. And it's apparent. It's like the lengths people will go to to defend that... These are just Stannis's men. He has to keep them to lead and take over Westeros. But then the people are like, do you not hear? Take over Westeros? Like, do you, why, 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 why? Like, why do you think that's going to make this, this nation better? I just have to know. I also noticed that a lot of people, people mm -hmm. that won't extend the same, uh, won't extend the same courtesy to Daenerys. And she, and her people are right. nearly as bad. Like, worst one she's got is probably Dario. I'd say it's a shave pit. Dario, he seems like he's kind of skeezy, but yeah. I think he's probably more loyal than most people, yeah. and he's probably going to die for her as a hostage, but... He's still probably the worst, like, the most morally questionable of the, her close confidants, but... And that's at worst. And Clayton's not, like, a bad egg. I saw some post on Reddit that I wanted to 
just scream. Like I was screaming internally, just staring straight ahead at the screen where they were like, who are some other bad guys? Who are some other guys that have a bad rep but aren't actually evil? As we're about to learn, Justin Massey tells Asha that Clayton likes to torture people. Like for fun, he helps the torturers on Dragonstone when he's just chilling outside of wartime. Like that's not bad egg. That's like Joffrey ripped open a cat for fun, remember? And everybody shits on Joffrey. Like that was for science. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, yeah, that was for science. Exactly. There you go, Eliana. Like, this was for fun. This right here is recreational torture, especially if they're female. Like, that that's, I don't know, that's pretty shitty. They're already, like, screwed their whole life because they're in the dungeons of a higher lord's dungeon. Like, you gotta just add insult to, for fun. Yeah, it's gross. Shitty. Shitty guy. Shitty guy. He's not great. Not great. Something that I thought was interesting in this language was the way that uh, the scene is actually described where Asha says she sees Clayton Suggs at the night fires watching and he's watching these fires and it's described as his lips parted and his eyes avid. And that sounds so much like the description of Cersei watching the Tower of the Handburn. And I think Cersei and Clayton are obviously quite different, but obviously Cersei's become quite associated with the torturing of some people. She doesn't quite like watching it, nor does she like hearing it because she's like, this is annoying to me. But the the I just thought that was startling the that the language and description are similar there. Cersei separates herself from the torture as much as possible, even as she orders mm-hmm. it. Like even as like the the blue bard or whatever the hell he's called is being tortured, she's like, Marjorie, you made me do this. <laughs> like and it's like, girl. <laughs> oh my god. Hey, Stannis has a little of that too, right? During this, we'll talk about it. He's pretty despondent. He's not really involved. None of the stuff that Ash is learning during this time is surprising her because everything is freaking cold and awful. And she's just like, this sucks. Uh, everything sucks for her right now. They're on day 19. Sugs. Everything sucks right now. They are on day 19 of a three-day march. A hundred leagues from Deepwood Mott to Winterfell. 300 miles as the raven flies. We get the repeated mantra. And the storm is not letting up. It's, it's like ready to bury the long haul. They don't have food. They have meager sustenance from the woods. Fishing is not working as we discussed. And the king's knights and lords have been having the lion's share of the horse meat. So little and less remain for the common men. So... Asha is also not surprised that the common men are being found eating dead people. Like, it's not surprising because they're hungry. What's weird about, like, a lot of Asha chapters is we get a lot of a background when it it comes to her family. But this is a woman who's been, like, who's traveled and raided, stuff like that. And there's not as much on that. Like, Mm -hmm. like, not as much as, like, what the things she's done, more about the stuff she's come from. And, or where she's come from, not so much um, she's done. How much of this has she seen before? I doubt she's seen cannibalism before. I don't think she has. I think this is like just an obvious like no shit because she commented so heavily on the food last chapter. So I don't. It didn't didn't sound great. Not a lot of nutrition going on. So I feel like that one's obvious. But it's interesting because her voyages, some of them seemed like she's seen some action from the way it's talked about. And we spoke about this a little last episode that like we have to like make up you know, some of that in our brains of what she actually did in voyages she did in raiding, because there's no finite details. But then a lot of the different trips she took in her late teens and, like, mid-teens sounded like they were just pleasure barge hangouts with Carl. You know what I mean? So it's like, when... Obviously the reaving that happened in the War of the Five Kings, but it feels like it's... Maybe it's more... It's newer than we think. You know, maybe that's an early 20s thing. 
Yeah, I don't know. Uh, we get some idea of how far Asha might have gone, right, uh, later in this chapter towards the end. But may hopefully it's something George fills out more. And there's always the possibility that has George not included it in Asha's chapters, A, because he didn't think about it because he doesn't always, or B, is it like an intentional choice on his part to make Asha more sympathetic to the audience? Possibly. I think because she is the sympathetic Ironborn. We're going to talk mm-hmm. about Victorian later in full. Uh, and uh, that's gonna be fun. Oh, you don't think he's I, sympathetic? Well, yeah, I do. No, I obviously, I, I, no, I'm just kidding. Just... Stannis Junior on the sea? No, <laughs> I don't feel like Victorian's very sympathetic. Uh, it's... Also, he's way worse than Stannis. Yeah. If I oh yeah. God yeah. Oh yeah. No, he is. He is. Yeah. He's definitely worse. Yeah. <laughs> I was about to say, I know we're, I know we're gonna be picking on Stannis, but I don't think he's as bad as Victorian. Stannis is at least smart. <laughs> Victorian yeah. is not. Four Peasberry men. Let's get on these Peasberry men. They Okay, we're not gonna. We're not gonna. But they were found butchering Lord Fell's body. This is the spectacle. This is the whole thing we're talking about. Uh, Asha thinks that these guys are not the first. They're just the first to get caught eating people's dead bodies in this camp, probably this week. Uh, and she doesn't believe in R'hllor, but she hopes this is the god that can fix some things. This burning right here, she's like, fingers crossed this is the one because mama's got queen's blood. Mama's got king's blood, you know, like she is not not doing so hot. Not great. Queen's blood and no. a bad ankle. Well, she's not doing so hot deer. yet. Hopefully she <sighs> never does hot. Hopefully she never does hot. And, you know, yeah, she's like, hopefully that these four men are the ones who will appease <laughs> Barry, the, the red god. Nailed it. Nailed it. Um, oh, sorry, sorry. Yes, yes. Um. So what's going on here I find really interesting in terms of the logic that's being uh, that's being exemplified because it's really quite the catch-22 when you think about it. The line is, Asha Greyjoy put no faith in the Red God, yet she prayed they had the right of that. If not, there would be other pyres and Sir Clayton Suggs might get his heart's desire. And so I, it's kind of weird because on one hand, of course, there's hope that the blizzards stop, right? That makes sense because, yes, that would slow the burnings. But then again, if the storm stops, then wouldn't that just kind of prove that the burnings and R'hllor, this power, works, leading to therefore more burnings and sacrifice? And I know that Stannis, he says of the leeches and that the burning sword, like, he says he doesn't believe Melisandre's religion, yet he sees these as miracles or proof of that power, without really a question of whether or not Melisandre actually caused the kings to die by throwing the leeches in the fire, or is it maybe that she saw it and then burned the leeches? But either way, right, that there's one action and then you see the follow-up leads people to believe that there is a connection and that causation. And so this is, I think, very much a question that George is asking around faith, because I think that the logical conclusion of the storm continuing, despite them burning people, would be that, wow, maybe the burnings don't work, and they should stop, right? Yet the Queen's men take it rather as signs that they should continue and burn more people if it doesn't work, that they should follow up on the sacrifices. And I think Stannis thinks the same as that too, because he's like, what the fuck are we doing? Justin Massey's also clearly like, what the fuck are we doing? Um, it, and it's the same 
it's again that same idea of what we've been saying over and over throughout like every episode because I'm a broken record of the power of religion beyond just the magic and miracles and the power that's rooted in people's own faith, especially with the seven. But here they would continue, right? They, they're just going to sacrifice more, burn and pray harder. And with characters like Clayton Suggs, we see how that religion gets perverted in terms of power, but especially to serve their own personal power. These guys are not a threat, right? Like, it's just like, and we'll talk about this later, but when the three folk cross the wall, like, they're not actually this violent, awful group. They are naked. These men are naked, weeping, and they're begging. They're just men. And the oldest of the group is the sergeant, and he is spitting venom at the rest of the RVPs and the CEOs, the guys in suits out there, you know, ready for this burning, Clayton and co. And he's like, I wish I could have eaten your... F- it's really good. Eliana wants us actually to read it. She really likes it. <laughs> It's really good. They're the, like the best last words anyone could ever have. Just like shitting on everyone around them. Fuck you all and fuck your red god too, he said. You hear me, Theron? Giant Slayer, I laugh when your fucking cousin died, Godry. We should have eaten him too. He smelled so good when they roasted him. I bet the place was nice and tender and juicy. A blow from the spear that drove the man to his knees but did not silence him. When he rose, he spat out a mouthful of blood and broken teeth and went on. <laughs> The cocks, the choicest part, all crisped up on the spit of fat little <laughs> sausage. Even as they wrapped the chains around him, he raved on, Corliss Penny, come over here. What sort of name is Penny? Is that how much your mother charged? And you sucked, you bloody bastard, you! It's so good. Yes. The cock being the choicest part. I have to believe that that's not just a joke. I have to believe that that is a reference to the cook, the thief, his wife, or her lover. Which is... This amazing movie in the 80s with Helen Mirren mm. and in it, at the end, the thief of the title kills her lover and he had sworn that he would kill his wife's lo- lover and eat him. So she actually takes the corpse of her lover and fries him up and then tells him, why don't you try the cock first? She force feeds her lover to her husband and she's like, why don't you try the cock first? And, uh, and I have to imagine that's a reference to that. Please, George. That has to be. It's too, it's absolutely too specific to not be. And George is really into his references. Yeah. Let's be real. Yeah. He really likes movies. Yeah. And he likes things that are quite like that. George, George DM us to confirm. <laughs> I, I have, I, I like my references too, but I like my references to not be like, reference here can go through too far. Like we know this because scary movie exists and all the movie movies exist. But uh, I like my nerd references too. Well, unfortunately, Wendy's favorite guy, the sergeant, gets his throat slashed to shut him the fuck up. The youngest boy is there, and literally, boy is what he's called, a weeping young boy, and he's shaking and sobbing. I'd imagine he can't be more than 14 to 16. Asha notices this boy's ribs are sticking out from how malnourished he is. Aww. Not yeah, great. it just is like, not monsters, only men, and that's like a big, that's another giant theme here. Like, nearly every character at the book, at this point in the book, is just a person in a desperate situation. And it's really interesting, because this is the first book, this is, it, well, not this is, uh, but like, A Feast for Crows was the last book, and it was like the first book to have Circe's POV, where, and she was like a monster to the audience so much, and then we learned she's a person, and her most humanizing moment happens in this book, too. Yes. Mm-hmm. And she's one of the biggest monsters or villains in the story. So I just thought that was really interesting. Theon, you know, had been villainous for a long time. And then, you know, well, he's... Unfortunately, I don't think that's going to work for Stannis, no. though. You know, I feel like for him, he's just going to tumble down the hill and trip over himself pretty soon. But he's not considered all that monstrous by the fandom. No, that's true. That's true. Well, yet. I think, uh... 
We shall see that. But Asha thinks the sergeant had a great approach. Goad them into killing him. And she's like, I better take notes on this just in case I have to do that when they kill me. And they they work quickly. They douse leaves with oil to combat the falling snow. And Stannis is kind of his watchtower watching from time to time. Some of them were insisting he was calling out for Lady Melisandre. And Asha agrees he's lost. He clearly needs help because they're just kind of at a standstill here in this crofter's village. We then learn that the only help that has come for Stannis in this time, as they set up the fire, uh, was Arnulf Karstark recently with his son, his three grandsons, 400 spears, two score archers, a dozen mounted lances, a maester, a cage of ravens, and enough provisions for only his own people. Asshole. Useless. That was the first sign, in my opinion, and I think we're going to get some really interesting stuff here with him, because that was the first sign that you should have looked out. Arnold's car strike. Is this BYOB? (laughs) Not a real lord. I brought enough B just for He's not even a real lord! (laughs) Yeah, that's true. He's not a real lord. He is only a castellan, Mm -hmm. so... You know, the real lord, right, remains captive of the Lannisters, which is quite interesting. Mm -hmm. We get a description of Arnulf Karstark, gaunt and bed and crooked, with a left shoulder half a foot higher than his right. He had a scrawny neck, squinty gray eyes, and yellow teeth. A few white hairs were all that separated him from baldness. His forked beard was equal parts white and gray, but always ragged. Asha thought that there was something sour about his smiles. Yet, if the talk was true, it was Karstark who would hold Winterfell should they take it. Interesting. <clears throat> so we don't really get the payoff for the Arnulf Karstark appearance uh, until Winds of Winter. Sorry, uh, some spoilers in the Theon's Theon chapter. But it's fun structurally within this very book, and it leads to a lot of, I think, dramatic tension and irony. Uh, because Stannis leaves... John at the wall, yeah, just before Alice Karstark can appear and reveal Arnulf's treachery, which we also know from Theon's Reek chapters themselves, right? That we know that Arnulf Karstark is a jerk uh, in multiple ways and is trying to trying to trick Stannis. But it's also interesting for Karstark to be here in a way. It gives another uh, nodding towards Asha's own predicament with the great uncle, as opposed to an uncle, whatever, right? Forcing the heir of a house to wed against her will a girl fleeing her marriage that that is definitely as we've talked about there's a lot of weddings going on and so we have some language speaking of that there's this language about uh where they start chanting godry faring is chanting and doing his beautiful songs to his love relore and stannis had allowed them to begin the burning asha is wondering if karstark is watching because he wants to see relore's power or if he's surveying them because he is kind of at stannis's side up there and we get this line from Godry. We thank you for the stars that watch over us by night and pray that you will rip away this veil that hides them so we might glory in their sight once more. Uh, and there's a lot of other language, but that struck out in me so hard because of veil. And I was just thinking of like how often we actually hear the word veil in the story besides the actual veil of Aaron. And in dance specifically, we hear of Vales during Daenerys's plot, Tyrion's plot, Theon's plot, Asha, Barrison, and Quintin's plot, uh, and all in different uses. In Theon, we hear it as a veil of falling snow for Daenerys's wedding, her actual veil, and the veil of smoke from Drogon later on in Dance, and a veil of tears from her in the sand. Uh, in the epilogue of Dance, we hear of a veil of ragged clouds 
across the full moon. And we even have George using this language in the Sworn Sword, which was another veil of smoke by the King's Crown. And as we've talked about extensively, whenever there's gray mist in the story, it is Bran or Bloodraven checking in, right? Uh, so it's interesting wordplay using the veil to tie it in, using a veil to tie in the snow and this wedding, because it's a wedding of fire with these bodies, right? And they use that term. We saw a wedding, a lore wedding with Alice and Sigorn, but uh, it's a wedding of fire and body. There's not a lot of veils in the actual weddings in Westeros. I, I'm pretty sure, to, yeah, is, Daenerys the, is Daenerys the only one with a veil at a wedding? Yeah, and that's a Miranese style, I think, but... Yeah, there's a cloak. There are cloaks. The yeah. wedding cloak, yeah. But there's the no we- there's no veils in it. Yeah, that is interesting. I didn't notice that. It's just because they like have cool scarves, I guess, in Marine. They're like, might as well use... With the continuation of his prayer, I thought it was like, really interesting, is that like, he goes, accept the sacrifice and show us the way to Winterfell that we might vanquish unbelievers. And that is so freaking funny to me. They, they talk about vanquishing unbelievers, but none of the people of Winterfell that are actually supposed to be Winterfell, in fact, the people that they're supposed to be fighting for for Winterfell are believers either. None of this really involves unbelievers. Like, the men sacrificed aren't being killed for lack of belief. And the problem with people at Winterfell is now not a lack of belief. The unbelievers of Winterfell, like, if it wasn't this point in the story, the unbelievers of Winterfell would be Ned or Arya, Bran, Sansa, Kat, John. All these people, they're not, these are not roller people. They are, you know, Faith of the Seven and Old Gods. And in fact, John rejected Stannis's offer he was very much an unbeliever and, but Stannis still didn't burn John even though John rejected Rolar, Stannis and Winterfell and religion here is just a basically a reason for conquest and, the, and like that's re-emphasized mm-hmm. in this prayer they wanted to install another unbeliever like they would they're supposedly also going to be fighting for the Starks and we're going to go into how empty that is too they're unbelievers too Bran or Sansa or Arya or any of the other Starks would be any more willing to you know burn down the godswood especially not Bran, Bran and Sansa would be willing to burn down the godswood any more than John would. That's something that's so interesting with Sansa, right? Because she re- she respects both of the religions she practices and worships for both. Like, she believes in both, but she's kind of trying out the new gods and trying to get her mom seven more into it. These children would accommodate people of other religions. Mm-hmm. Winterfell was accommodating of Catelyn in the end, and her sept. And Stannis and his people don't, they, they don't really take well to other religion at all, do they? No. Sansa literally sought out the godswood constantly. It was where she found her refuge. It was where she plotted her escape from King's Landing. And then even after she escaped, she seeks out a godswood again and rebuilds Winterfell in the godswood. And it, it she grows closer and she still prays to the seven, but she grows closer and closer to the old gods as time goes on. There is no way the girl who like rebuilt her home in the snow under a godswood would be willing to burn the godswood in her home. And... Uh, you know, and then of course Bran's Bran. We are we don't even have to go into that because it's just self-explanatory. Arya, if anybody, is probably like the least connected to the old gods at this point because you know, but she wouldn't do it either because she's mm-hmm. so connected to her heritage. And it's so funny because as much as we want to see the Boltons get their asses kicked, it's not because they're unbelievers. Yeah, yeah, it's about titles. It's about power and. Right now, the weeping boy that's getting burnt, it's so sad because he's like screaming and he's like, they found him dead. We were hungry, please. Uh, And it's not like they did not commit this evil sin to be treacherous. They were hungry. And again, I cannot emphasize enough that like, he's a boy. It reminds me, what's the language in the broken man speech? And then some Lord yells and says, you're all mine. Like some of these 
common folk that are following Stannis. And a lot of people like to say it's Yas King. He has yeah. all this, the common folk. It's not. It's because some lord just put his sword in the air and said, I'm the king. I'm the true ruler. You follow me now. And they didn't have a choice in the matter. It was do or die. And now for those guys, it was do or die. I mean, the ribs were outlined for a reason. We're supposed to pay attention that this is a young boy who was hungry. Uh, It doesn't feel like a righteous act to me. And it's like, you know, they they emphasize, like, he can't be more than, like, 15 or 16. And, like, Bran, who commits cannibalism by proxy, kind of, um, as we find out later on. I mean, I say by proxy because he does it through, he, he does it through summer, but, like, he eats male. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I, I wasn't that. referring to Jojen yeah. Mace, if that's what you were talking <laughs> um. <laughs> Oh, I was talking about the other time that Cold Hands was yeah. like, hey guys, I found some pig. Yeah. Isn't that interesting? That <laughs> sure doesn't seem like a pig. Yeah, Brent, but like, he's even younger. He's like almost half that age. There's like a common thing in the fandom where they seem to think that like, Stannis is going to ride for Winterfell and then, I don't know, Sansa probably is going to ride with the, the Knights of the Vale to Winterfell and they're going to take the North together and he, they're going to set up this big alliance just like Ned wanted to and no, no, he's not going to be the ally to the Starks that he wants that, that you think he's going to be. In fact, quite the opposite. The North is going to be real lucky when the only kingdom that has really constant food left yeah. somehow joins on to their problems soon. But <laughs> the, when Sansa frees up that grain. And it's the most, w- coupled with the most religiously tolerant leader, perspective leader that you could possibly have. <laughs> like, yeah. And and I get that Stannis, it's like pride, right? Stannis will break before he bends. He will refuse hungry and whatever, but we're not going to break. I mean, the siege, right, at Storm's End, that is the biggest foundation for all this. This is once again, Stannis deciding what's worth it. This burning is not the last burning of this book, right? In the very next chapter, we have one other humorless, navally gifted middle child doing some burnings of his own with another red wizard. Uh, We have Victarion. He would feed the red god too, Makoro's fire god. The arm the priest had healed was hideous to look upon, pork crackling from elbow to fingertips. Sometimes when Victarion closed his hand, the skin would split and smoke, yet the arm was stronger than it had ever been. Two gods are with me now, he told the dusky woman. No foe can stand before two gods. This is literally what Stannis is surrounded with as well, with Melisandre, who often says no one can withstand R'hllor's instruments or flames, as in Stannis being that instrument. And I think there's a definite use in other powerful men being described as no one could withstand him, like Gregor Clegane, who's also cloaked in fire, and Euron, who's cloaked in psychedelic-ass blue crazy ice fire, crazy-ass whatever, LSD tripping balls pirate who knows uh victorian though in this next chapter he does something similar he burns someone as well he burns seven women actually he takes a slave ship from yunkai it was on its way to lease to sell boys and girls to a pleasure house he chooses seven of the choicest girls ew uh they're very diverse george spends a very long like little passage saying like each one is very diverse with their different looks we love a diverse king yes victorian yes king uh but the way that victorian takes this ship Reminds me of Stannis back at the wall in the John chapters with how Stannis puts these circumstantial freedoms on the table for the free folk as long as they get rid of their dingy weapons and their religion. 
Uh, and when you think of Potter, Cotter Pike's message of dead things in the water, there are so many more important things that Stannis is not chasing. Like Stannis' time at the Wall was not well-informed. He did not chase the things he should have. When you look at the contractualism between a people and between their government, if he is going to want to expect these small folk, these men that followed him into this barren north where it's nothing but snow and hunger and death uh, and cold, he expects these low-born people to just be happy and go along with it and does not feed them. No expenses paid uh, and there's nothing to eat. And no, he's not eating like a king should right now. Stannis isn't. Uh, But what he is eating is still better than what they're eating. So this burning, uh, I mean, John had to make peace with Tycho and send him to find Stannis, right? Because Stannis set out ready to go right his wrongs and be a king. Uh, But a king in common theory should be facilitating that kind of networking and infrastructure. Stannis's goal has been to win. And defeat Robert's ghost. There's been no and then afterwards. No what comes next. No Aragorn's tax policy, if you will. Win and I'm king. It That's not a platform. That's not what caring for hundreds of thousands of millions of people across a country means. And Stannis didn't come with a plan for that infrastructure. For a place that quite obviously needs infrastructure because it's been ignored for decades. Like the Wall, for example. Vote Baratheon no matter who, though. Just saying. Yeah, well, I think that's, like, really an intrinsic, like, theme here. And, like, you know, hilariously, this is also a Circe parallel. You know, she's miserable and she's horrified, but she kind of likes Stannis. Uh, but she also has all the power. She's she's the queen regent. <laughs> and while she's facing a lot of obstacles, too, Tyrion says of Circe, like, she wants power but has, like, no idea what to do with it. And it's the same freaking thing with Stannis here, unfortunately, like. No, that's a great thought, though, because they're both chasing ghosts, right? They're chasing the ghosts of what they should be. And uh, the next chapter with Victorian is interesting because it's punctuated by Makoro. He ends the chapter, and this is honestly, put into context, this is probably what Stannis hears every yeah. night when Melisandre speaks to him when they're together. Obviously not right this moment, but when Melisandre's around, she's there to say to him what Makoro says to Victorian in the next chapter. Uh, and this is in context of the horn. However, for Melisandre and Stannis, it's in context of him as Azora High. Makoro says... Your brother did not sound the horn himself, nor must you. Here, blood for fire, fire for blood. Who blows the hell horn matters not. The dragons will come to the horn's master. You must claim the horn with blood. Uh, Every night, Melisandre gives him his little lullaby and his glass of warm lemon water, right? And says, Stannis, sweetie, you're the chosen one. You must claim it. We must birth another shadow, baby. You must do a sacrifice. We need king's blood. You're you're the one. Uh, And we see Victorian being nursed by that very idea. And it does seem in this chapter with Stannis, you know, with his gaunt skeletal looks, that he is conflicted. He is at this point of no return. He's about to pass some sort of line eventually because it's a lot different than the siege at Storm's End. You know, people talk about, like, shit all over Danny for screwing stuff up, and she totally does. 100% screw things up. But at least she's, like, trying to do things. And people are undoing the things she's doing. That's the other thing is, like, under... It's like having a toddler walk around behind you. Yeah, exactly. And half the time, it's her own council. It, it seems here, like, Stannis is really trying to please his council mm-hmm. and not the people that he's trying to win over, right? Like, this burning is for his queensmen. The queensmen wanted the burning. Stannis didn't want the burning. Stannis literally just said, there'll be no burnings, pray harder. And this was to appease Barry. And it was uh, stupid. Appease Barry them. Um... And it's like, 
really obvious, really obvious. And the people he should be trying to win over right now. Stupid. Are uh, the Northerners and the Northerners are pissed. (laughs) But I think that might be why Stannis relented to this one, right? Obviously, they were breaking uh, one of the big taboos in Westeros. There are, I think, what? four defined ones and they're like incest and that one's obviously been broken kin slaying guest right and cannibalism oh no it's not cannibalism it's slavery sorry it's slavery but this one's also in a way like kind of one in general and he relents it it is a taboo he relents to it because it's not one of the northerners because once you cross that line of being like we're burning people for being non-believers then he he suddenly starts having a real hard problem in his camp. I keep thinking about the punishments of the old gods because you just brought up guest right and it reminds me of uh, the rat being turned into rats to force to eat, like, eat your people and everything. Like it just reminds me of that. Like cannibalism isn't so much a taboo as it is a punishment actually. It's almost like um, you are forced to endure cannibalism. <laughs> forced to turn to cannibalism for some kind of sin. But these guys didn't have any sin. They didn't break any taboo. Really hungry. Yeah. Yeah, it asks, where is the line for taboo for this? It's something that's been asked throughout the series. A lot of the time, the line's pretty clear. (laughs) Here, it's not. (laughs) Well, the Queen's men are singing against flames, and the shrieks drown them out. The air is thick with burnt flesh, and the screaming stops. Stannis takes his leave. For more fire. (laughs) <laughs> yep, Hooray. to go steer in his night fires. And Arnulf tries to follow him, but Richard Horb is like, no, no, stops. And was like, you don't you don't follow the king, man, when he's going to his night fires. We just let him, you know. This is where Stannis is going to stare out the window, think about Proudwing, stare in the fire, think about how he'll never be better than his brother, and think about Melisandre's pussy. And that's about what he's doing right now. Think about the void, right? So Richard Horp takes Arnulf and he's like, let's go to the long haul. You just let Stannis be. All right. Fire can be multiple things, right? It's obviously giving life in many ways, right? They kind of fucking need it, especially when the others come. But here we're seeing it used in a destructive way. Um, It's hard. Things are hard. Um, Things that are also hard, you know, survival, having food, nutrients. And that's why cannibalism is coming to the forefront of the story here, right? Part of it is winter and winter both literally within the story, but also metaphorically. Um, and it's a specter that's actually hung over Stannis' story, I would say, since we first really get to know him. Uh, we hear those legends of him during the Siege of Storm's End and that they didn't cross the line then, but they came pretty close. You're like, let's just eat this leather. All right. Which, I mean, that's a thing. The people really do that. and kind of makes you think, is it Chekhov's cannibalism? But anyway, besides the Peacebury men, if we look at cannibalism... More metaphorically and thematically, same way as we do with Winter, I think we kind of see it arise in Stannis' story a few other ways in terms of what it means to do something in terms of consumption, not just the literally eating another body. And I think that there's something kind of like the concept of sexual cannibalism, which I'm some of you may know if you're like, I don't know, into bugs and shit, like praying mantises do it, red widow spiders. It's really common amongst bugs. Bugs love this stuff. Uh, and the female of the species will mate and then consume the male either before or after sex, which, you know, that's that's not a choice for their species. Um, that's actually how they work. In the context of Stannis and Melisandre's relationship, I think you can kind of see that come through a little. Like, there's already a lot of other Freudian readings when it comes to vaginas, right? And it's the mouth. It's so hungry. Vagina dentata, right? Like, uh, the... 
The Sarlacc the, the, pit. That mixture, that the complication pit. of desire. <laughs> yes, the Sarlacc yeah. Whoa. Whoa. That's lewd. Um, anyways, the life force, though, for the, I think you can see this idea of sexual cannibalism coming through with Stannis and Melisandre as his life force ends up becoming devoured during their copulation in order to create the shadow babies. And then I think there's another way we can kind of interpret it in the context of Greek mythology. There's that famous myth of Cronus or Saturn, depending on if you want to be Roman or not, uh, devouring his own children, same as his father did before him. You know, this is just like a weird thing that they do in the family. It's normal traditions. And of course, many already liken Stannis to Agamemnon because of his impending sacrifice of Shireen. But I think that there's also really a thematic aspect of it. The candy red of Stannis um, kind of being like Cronus in terms of that act of sacrifice and cannibalism. As the one like Peasbury Man yells, right? The ones that they were devouring for their own benefit that they might survive. Those people were already dead. Okay, like the flesh, the flesh roasting and smelling like pork as described in Sam's chapters, like, even when it's being burnt for like, oh, we can't let, we can't let these come back to life, or even here where it's being burned for like, we need the storm to stop, right? It it makes you wonder how far is the step of burning these men and their flesh for sacrifice, that scent of roast pork wafting through the camp, how different is it really to burn someone for your own personal benefit and the survival of others versus the act of devouring someone else's flesh? I, I totally, like, when you brought up Cronus, I was like, that is exactly what I was thinking about because so Cronus eats his children because he's afraid they're going to do to him what he did to his dad. Yes. He castrated his dad, you know, and just normal. Like, he's like, Oh, that's all shit. Right. That's normal sausage. God shit. Uh, and he ate them out of fear that he would lose power. Basically. That's the biggest point. And I think that's interesting because as Wendy kind of mentioned earlier, we have had cannibalism in this story, obviously very often already, but recently in the Frey Pies, which is very much coming to life. Uh, and to bring it back to Wyman Manderley and his rat cooking, it reminds me of Atreus and Theastes, of course, because they wanted the throne. Theastes seduced Atreus's wife. Later on, revengey stuff happens. Atreus broods and plots, and he ends up serving Theastes with his son. Uh, takes the platter off, displays their heads. And with the, the, the idea that like these men burning here did not eat Lord Fell for power, they did not burn they're not being burnt for power either like stannis i can tell you he knows that this is not going to clear this blizzard uh but this isn't revenge this isn't for power they ate him for survival out of hunger and fear and for a simple reason they aren't gods they aren't they aren't stannis they aren't cronus they aren't atreus they're just men but how can a self-proclaimed god decide to pass this judgment onto them or judge them So furthermore, Stannis is sitting back here at this burning, right, letting his men do it. And the man who passes the sentence should at least swing the goddamn Relore torch, right? Originally, Stannis had actually mentioned he wanted to execute these men, and the men pushed him to make it a sacrifice. Make no mistake, it's not a sacrifice to Relore, it's a sacrifice to his queen's men. A sacrifice so that Stannis can keep his southern men happy, make a message to the northerners like, look, we don't allow this in our camps. A sacrifice, just like eating your six kids to maintain and keep your power as king of this camp. He's using his pound of flesh to stay in power, quite literally. They were using the pound of flesh to stay alive. We're talking about, like, Stannis eating 
Oh, sacrificing and eating his kids, but we know what's going to happen with Shireen. She has king's blood, and it's she's got the blood. Well, she's the blood of the lamb, basically. It's a big Jesus thing. <laughs> this sacrifice isn't going to be anything, and he thinks. And by the time, like, um, by the time that this happens with Stannis, it's likely he's going to think he has to do it to save people, just like Jesus was sacrificed to save yeah. us all. Not really, but. And that's the difference, right? Because um, there are there are uh, parallels also to Abraham with either Isaac or Ishmael, depending once more on which book um, you believe. But the difference is Jesus went into it willingly, right? Shireen is not, and that's what's so horrible about what these men are doing, what Stannis is doing, that they would force someone else into the position of being sacrificed, of uh, someone else is paying the price instead of themselves. If Stannis Stannis has king's blood, if he wants everyone to survive, he gets on. He should get on that pyre, right? That's how. That idea of heroism and self-sacrifice works. But then he doesn't get to be the king, Eliana. Right. I mean, no, That's he doesn't. That's the whole thing. Yeah. He doesn't. And I mean, yeah, it's, I, uh... there are interpretations where people would argue that Stannis is in ways doing quite a bit of self-sacrifice, but I'm not... <sighs> Fuck that. <laughs> right now. Um... Yeah, we're not going there right now. But I would say that, like, I mean... Even just the scene, for it to be a proper sacrifice, they took the clothing off the men, brought them out naked, and put them on the pyre. Is that what's going to happen to Shireen? That's going to be a gruesome sight. Can, can, yeah, she can at least keep her clothes on, right? I hope. I don't know. Will Relore accept it that way? It might not be pure. I don't know how religion works. Just thoughts. Like, that's pretty fucked up. I, I should add that to my list of questions. Should add that to my list of questions for George. Well, no, in general, do, do people need to be naked to be sacrificed to a lore? A question. Along with, George, will you fork your beard? During various inquisitions uh, and witch burnings and things like that, and historically, um, they would shave the heads of the people being burned and shift, yeah. uh, not necessarily burn them naked, they would uh, strip mm. them down to shifts, though. Man, shift is I fine. Wonder, I don't know. A shift. It'll probably be a shift because she babby. Are they gonna shave her head? That's fine. I mean, the burning part is not. It's gonna have to be wild. He's gonna have to be so like he's already kind of out of it. Like right now, he's already like stares off into the distance for three hours straight until someone says, "Stannis, time for your water with lemon in it." But like it, he's gonna get worse and worse and worse. I don't think he's gonna last. I mean, I kind of think he'll last till the third quarter of the wind's a winner, but I don't know. Yeah. It's going to be hard. I, I mean... He, well, I'm kind of reminded... This This kind of reminds me of Argella Durandon, too. The Storm Queen. Oh, uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. If, if oh. Sarita is, in fact, yeah. uh, that's wow, that's out sad. naked in front of the crowds. Yeah. That, yeah. Mm. In chains, yeah. Yeah. Huh. Wow, that's a... That's, I didn't think about that. Sorry, yeah. I ad-lib a lot. All right, well... Speaking of awful, Sir Clayton oh, no. Suggs. Uh, Clayton Suggs. Clayton Suggs, yeah. bitch. Speaking of people who should fucking burn, uh, he he's harassing Asha while we've been sad about Shireen and horrified. And Clayton Suggs has been harassing Asha, asking if the Iron Cunt enjoyed the show. She thinks he has pig eyes and that they match his little house sigil. And uh, he tells her the crowd's going to be even bigger when it's her squirming on the stake. And he's not wrong. The wolves don't love the Ironborn or the centuries of awful stuff they've done. Or Dion's crimes or her crimes. 
And we get this passage, which is the best passage. It is the entire mood. I had kept it in here just because of it being the entire mood. Every time Suggs spoke to her, it left her yearning for her axes. Asha was as good a finger dancer as any man on the aisles and had ten fingers to prove it. If only I could dance with this one. Some men had faces that cried out for a beard. Sir Clayton's face cried out for an axe between the eyes. Ah, mood. Amazing. Asha writes. This was very relatable content. Yeah. Such a mood. It kind of reminds me yep. of, of uh, dudes that say girls wear too much makeup and then they have really thick beards that cover 40% of their faces. I don't know. I don't know. And then when we don't yeah, wear makeup, same energy, they tell us same <laughs> pretty much pretty much um also why would she say that about pigs pigs, pigs are adorable why would pigs in their eyes like that i know pig eyes are great wendy anecdote when i was seven years old i went to an amish countryside and i kissed a pig oh wow it was a challenge a kiss a pig tra- yeah probably i put a little bit of pretzel between my teeth and i walked up to like a baby pig and it was cute it was actually not as gross as you'd expect it to be I imagine it's way better than Clayton Suggs. Apparently it's like a challenge thing to prove how tough you are among the Amish or something. Oh, it's way better than Clayton Suggs and we should not slander pigs like this. Asha wrenches herself away from Clayton, who is worse than a pig. And then he digs his gloved fingers into her arm, which is horrible. And thankfully Allison comes and defends her and tells him, (laughs) you need to heed Lady Asha's request. Do not touch her or I don't... What are you doing? She's not for burning, alright? And then Clayton calls her a demon worshipper, saying that she will burn, and Justin Massey shows up with an easy smile and pink cheeks. He says that the king has other plans for the prize captive, and none of us know what those plans are, by the way. Clayton argues that she has king's blood, though, and Melisandre would say, there's power in king's blood. He doesn't think that four lowborn men will matter that much to Relor, but Asha would. And then Allie butts in, asking, fine, then who do we burn after Asha if the snow's still falling? Which, great question. Going back to what we were saying earlier, then Asha's like, I can't hold my tongue anymore. She responds with, Sir Clayton, maybe maybe Relor wants a faithful man to sing his praise while the flames lick at his cock. And everyone else is amused except for you Clayton You dropped this queen. Yes. <laughs> you dropped this queen. Everyone else is amused. <laughs> Clayton tries to come back with another empty threat and then shoves off. And then Asha thanks Justin for the valiant rescue. Then Alicent's like, that rescue's not going to win you any more friends. And (laughs) asks him, what about your own faith to R'hllor? And Justin's like, you know, I haven't just lost my faith in R'hllor. I've lost it in a lot of other things lately, but not in dinner. And then invites everyone to come eat with them. You know, Matthew's like the only one who acts like he has a soul anymore. And yet he's the one who's lost his faith. I almost want to be controversial, and I don't think he ever believed in R'hllor. Yeah. I don't. Probably not. I don't think he did either. He makes that retort to Richard Horp, and I think Horp and Massey seem like they're close. Yeah. I think Horp is, maybe Horp's similar in my opinion in that, like, there's a bunch of men here of the Southerners that I you think can so. tell are pretending that they are full-on R'hllor fanatics because it puts them in the Queen's favor and puts them in the King's favor by proxy and keeps them in high status. And I think that Massey definitely was just trying to use opportunity as he could here, and he Mm -hmm. didn't join for R'hllor. He actually joined to follow Stannis and get some some land, some money, not for religion. Justin's in it for himself, but at least I think he's honest about that. Yeah, he didn't join to go to church. You know what I'm saying? 
he wants them to come eat and they're like, no, we do not have an appetite. And he tells them, well, you should anyway, because we're down from 800 horses to, oh, you know, 64 horses. Oh, even the northern horses have started oh, to starve, no. by the way. 8%. They've lost 92% of their horses. Don't give your horses other horses to eat, probably. Yeah, no, that's that's an abomination. Know. They've probably done, they've actually probably started doing yeah. that. But that's how you, that's how you get mad cow. I'm just, I'm just thinking it. That's such hypocrisy. That is such hypocrisy. You guys are going to feed horses to the horses, but then you're going to fucking burn men alive for eating other men. Don't you know what Tuda is? It's, <laughs> if I punch Tuda, I'd be an abomination. <laughs> I love Lilo and Stitch, yes. I will, I will fight to reference Lilo and Stitch. Well, you know what? At the end of the chapter, we're going to get an Ohana moment, so just hang tight. Uh, the chapter that actually comes after yeah. Wendy's sacrifice well is completely kind of the opposite situation. We have an exiled Stormlord, John Connington, trying to get back his home. He barely loses anyone. He loses only four people, where Stannis and co. are on 80-something in the cult count. Uh, John Con, because Stannis is Audi, slips back into his house like he never left. His homecoming is easy. Stannis is trying to take something that isn't his, and he's having a hard time. John Con knows this. John Con uses Stannis's exit for his benefit, and most people think he's leading sellswords for Stannis. He uses that. He's like, yeah, 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 sure, believe that. In a way, Stannis's battle of the bells was probably Blackwater, mm. right? But John Connington does a lot of thinking about how he kept going after the wrong thing at the Battle of the Bells, Robert, and how it got the better of him, and he was cast down by Robert because of it. Stannis is chasing the wrong thing, Robert's fucking ghost and glory, uh, and is gonna probably be cast down because of it in the end. Yes. Both of them have revolved their lives around Robert the same way Robert revolved his life around Rhaegar <laughs> and Lyanna. Cast down like Cersei again. Uh -huh. Wow. Who all Cersei also pursued Robert's power, interestingly enough, and she was cast down. Just like Saturn and his dad. Okay, Cronus, whatever, depending on who you are. But we have a we have a question. At least he didn't eat his children. He's just like I'm gonna make a million babies. Or even Zeus, yeah. who also devoured. He ate his first wife Metis, and then thus, uh, at one point Athena was in his belly, flew up to his head, and then yeah. sprung forth from his head. There's a question regarding the horses. There are many questions regarding horses in general, but this one, Asha's wondering, but what did they need horses for? Stannis was no longer marching anywhere. The sun and moon and stars had been gone so long that Asha was starting to wonder whether she had dreamed them. There's no light in the darkness anymore. Ironically, the people serving the camp serving the Lord of Light, there's no light in the darkness. Maybe the light is inside of us. Oh, the stars are going out. The stars are going out. That's what it feels like. Soon it will be yep. the longest night. Mm -hmm. Asha takes his advice to eat, but Alisand doesn't wish to accompany them. Justin takes responsibility over the prisoner, and they head to eat. Guards are flanking the door, and the room's big. It's big enough for 50 men, so 100 men naturally are packed in at the tables with smoke coming out of the roof hole and a fire trench in the middle of the room. The southern men are on one side, the wolves another. This right here reminded me a lot of a line. I think it's in Dance, actually, where the Lannister guards men are on one side and the Reach men are on the other. And the line is very obviously drawn, the green versus red. And I, I felt that here. The southern versus the uh, northern men. Very separate. 
Is this a sports reference? It probably is, knowing George. I mean, I don't definite. know. Aren't, doesn't, isn't, the green, isn't green the Giants? Yeah, but like the way that they're split up, is that like how sports stadiums look? No, not necessarily. <laughs> no, not necessarily. Like, I, I, I say this as somebody who's been to a lot of hockey okay. games and a lot of college football games. It tends to be kind of scattered. Like, sometimes uh, the, the visit- fans of the visiting team will buy a block together, but... Mm. Oh, I thought I was on to something, but <laughs> I don't know sports. Uh, what I do know is that the Southerners seem sick and gaunt, red, wind-scarred, and the Northern men are like, yeah, I don't know, healthy and ruddy. Uh, Asha thinks, you know, they're probably also hungry and cold, but they definitely wear it a lot better because they have fucking the bear paws and garins <laughs> and aren't being idiots in the cold like they've lost hardly anyone and the southerners are just like having a horrible time they're like all walking in the same places they probably would be in winterfell by now if everyone followed the northmen again i mean most of them like live during the long summer but a lot of these guys have lived long enough to remember the other winters that's true they they are older and you know like um there's just so many themes of like toughness in this chapter and like asha like things like she has these horrible shooting pains in her legs and it's because of that's also a thing. And, like, she's trying to, like, restrain herself. Like, there's all these things of, like, I'm tough enough to do this, I'm tough enough to do that. And she's, like, trying to hold herself, like, apart from uh, everyone. But she's, there's these little allusions to how she's similar to the Northerners. Because it's sort of, like, her similarities with Alisane and, like, uh, you know. And then, also, she's probably wearing, she's wearing it a little bit better, but she's, you know, kind of caught in the middle. Uh, between like how they're handling the cold. Yeah, she broke her ankle back in. Uh, I want to say it was in Wayward Bride and the Deepwood Mott scuffle. So she is still definitely reeling from the after effects of that of trying to walk miles and miles and do things with a broken ankle because there's no healthcare right now in the middle of this blizzard. That's for sure. And it is interesting to see kind of the Ironborn hold hold themselves against the uh, the northern kind of culture as well. Like, these are the two toughies, and the southerners are definitely the complainers. There's no not- there's no care. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, while Asha lets her feet thaw, Justin fetches them supper for maybe one of the least romantic first dates anyone's ever had. There's ale and chunks of horse meat, a smaller portion than last time. She gives Sir Massey her thanks, and he's like, please, call me Justin. Down the table, Will Foxglove gossips that Stannis has seen victory in the flames and they'll be marching in three days. Justin Massey chimes in that the cold count reached 80 the night before. They'll die by the hundreds if they march and they won't be able to take Winterfell because how the fuck are they going to do it with exhausted, cold, hungry men, which is all they have, which is a question I've been wondering for chapters now. Well, actually, just one other chapter. Like, I don't know how they're going to do this. Humphrey Clifton says it's better than the thousands they'll lose by staying in the village and Sir Ormond Wilde says they should wait till the weather breaks. Sir Ormond Wilde gets described as a cadaverous old knight here that he's like old and unfun. And I think this is really funny because we later get fire and blood and we the character we learn from in Fire and Blood, Morgan Wilde's daughter, uh, is Corian Wilde. And in Fire and Blood, Alisanne and Jaehaerys marry against everyone's will. Alyssa and Rojar seek to undermine them separately. Al- Alyssa dispatches maids for Alisanne to Dragonstone but basically uses some of these maids to maybe try to break up Jaehaerys and Alysanne in different ways or etc. and spy on them like they do with different maids. It, it was a great way for Alyssa and Rojar to actually strengthen their Stormland alliances, which is something we see 
They send some Celtigars. Uh, they do send a couple Tolis and a Septa, but we actually get three girls of noble birth, one from the Vale, the Stormlands, and the Reach sent there. Jenis of House Templeton, Corianne of House Wild, and Rosamond of House Ball. Rojar and Alyssa uh, end up pushing it. Rojar uses it for himself. We actually have in Fire and Blood, of course, you have the rando narrator of, was it Mushroom says this, and so and so. So the book that came up out of this is a book about all of this by many names. The most frequently named is A Caution for Young Girls, or uh, if you're Brenda B. Fish, it's A Cautioner's Tale for Young Girls. Corian <laughs> Wild is met by a Baratheon, either Boris or Rojar, the tale goes, depending on who you listen to, and instructed, basically the summation of it, she's told to seduce Jaehaerys. What's funny is we've been talking about Asha a lot in the framework of Reyna, and the story of A Caution for Young Girls is being told next to Reyna and Andrew Farman's tale at Fair Isle in Fire and Blood. So I think that might lead a little credence going on to that framework. Uh, but re- returning to the current Lord Wild, we know Cory and Wild has some crazy adventures that get discussed, some lewd adventures. In Stannis's camp, this Lord Wild is cadaverous, and all these men are betting when he's going to die that he's going to die next. So I think it's so funny because George is like, House Wild, the person you know from House Wild is an old man that could die at any minute. And then he's like, fire and blood, House Wild, sex. Yeah, I mean, I'm not saying that Ormond Wild here hasn't been on some crazy adventures. This is a crazy adventure. It's just going to be his last one. <laughs> yeah, that's for sure. He's going to die. Yeah. He's, he might die waiting uh, for the weather to break like he's advising. Yeah. I mean, maybe he won't. Maybe he'll surprise all of us, right? Like everyone's saying. Or maybe he'll come back as a white. You know, the whole cadaverous imagery. Yeah. yeah. Oh, cadaverous. Maybe he's the he prince who's promised. Yeah. White, uh, in the, the group. Okay, I, I, I'm into it. I'm interested. That's okay. about it. That That's yeah. the furthest that thought okay. went. Um, Asha has better thoughts, right? She's wondering how much the bet is on her dying next. And she's like, can I? Can I get in on the vetting pool? Interesting. <laughs> For my death? I mean... Oh, it's a death pool. Okay, anyways. Um, Wild insists that there are fish. And Lord Peasbury says yes, but there are not enough fish. And there are too many fishermen. Lord Peasbury is quite gloomy, which is, you know, only natural after his own men have been burnt for being caught as cannibals. And some of the men in the halls have been gossiping that, you know, Peasbury must have known what was going on. Maybe he even partook too. Uh, Noseless Ned Woods is one of the scouts from Deepwood Mott. He's a Graves Peasbury and when he speaks, even the proudest Southern Lord pays him attention because he's quite respected. He tells them that they've made the frozen lakes look like cheese with all of their holes. That they fished out all the lake. Uh, And that's kind of funny, you know, cheese and mice and rats. Uh, You were all talking about the Rat King earlier on, cannibalism. But anyways, Humphrey Clifton insists, like, this is why we have to march. March or die. It sounds like they're going to march or die regardless. Anyway, just Massey tells him to die how he wishes, but he would like to see another spring. Peasbury implies that it is a craven way of thinking, and Justin responds, better a craven than a cannibal. Everyone's fighting. (laughs) Got him. Than a cannibal. Justin with, like, the spicy takes here. Um, but yeah, and then there's like this point where they say like, press on and die, stay here and die, fall back and die. They're literally the walking dead. They're the walking dead, not like the walking dead, the show, but like they're, there's some, there's a lot of dead men walking here. No matter what they do, they are dead. And so we all have like multiple armies of walking dead uh, going towards Winterfell, which is so great, isn't it? 
And of course, we did bring up that the lake was full of holes from their ice fishing. I think later on we'll mention it in passing again, but the night lamp theory is probably one of the biggest theories about what's going to happen with Stannis' battle. Brendan B. Fish and Cantus from Reddit over there, they have chatted about it. Uh, we'll put some links up in there. It's not our thing. I don't really... It's hard for me to get excited about stuff that I don't see. I'm a visual person. I get it. I get it. But so the holes, you know, they're hoping the phrase are going to fall in those holes is what the whole theory kind of starts. And there's some other stuff. We'll talk about it. But I digress. Um, I subscribe to it, but we're not going to talk about it. And also, I'm not going to do a good job of describing it. And I just think people should read it because yeah, no, it's a classic. I can't describe it. So just read it. And it. I'm bad at things I don't like. Analysis. <laughs> I, don't, I generally don't like talking about battles anyways like to yeah, are always the most boring yeah. part of any story like the battles themselves yeah i just like knowing what happens like afterward that that's what i prefer it's just my thing everyone has a thing yeah what what are the what are the key points that actually matter other than a pile of corpses yes that is unless there's romance in the middle of the battle i love when the two people that i ship fight together and defend each other that's that's what i want out of my battles i want metaphors for fucking you need to read Girl Genius then. Like one of the first major battles in that story is has uh the main character and her original and her oh, first love, love interest that, love that. back to back. Yeah, it's in comic form too, so you get to see it. Yeah, I'll I'll link you guys later. There's a Storm King. Oh, there's a Storm King legend in uh, that that story too. Yeah, and there's a big battle for power that everyone's after, and uh, you, and a lot of legends like history and stuff well, like that. But. We're interrupted right now by Richard Horp. He is also interrupting them. And he says that death is part of war and snow is melting in his hair, which kind of makes me think about the snow melting in all the different Starkling's hair that we've talked about before. Uh, There was snow in Godric's hair as well earlier when he was singing to R'hllor. And it feels significant, but for other reasons, like what what Wendy just mentioned, that uh, these monsters might not come back. These monsters might actually be slain. We'll see. We'll see. He says that those too weak to march may stay, but should fend for themselves if they stay. Those that march with Stannis will have a share in the glory, quote unquote, that they take back from the Boltons, and they'll send food from Winterfell (laughs) when they can. Just, (laughs) it's just funny to me. (laughs) Justin argues they won't take Winterfell, and Arnulf Karstark is cackling and laughing. He's like, no, no, they're going to, they're going to. And he stands up like a vulture from its prey, clutching his son's shoulder. We'll take it for the Ned and for his daughter. I and for the young wolf, too. Him who was so cruelly slaughtered. Me and mine will show the way, if need be. I've said as much to his good grace, the king. March, I said, and before the moon can turn, we'll all be bathing in the blood of Freys and Boltons. Men began to stamp their feet, to pound their fists against the tabletop. Almost all were Northmen, Asha noted. Across the fire trench, the southern lords sat silent on their benches. The daughter he's referring to is Arya, because they think Arya's in the clutches and the Boltons. It's not really Arya. But Arya's not even really Arya right now. Uh, she's trying and going, she's futilely trying to shed, or pretending to, she's going to shed who she is and become no one. She, we, like, none of the Starks are the Starks themselves right now. And what's so funny is he he mentions Rob, but Rob is the one who killed yeah. Lord Karstark at the first. It's such fucking bullshit. It's amazing how the Starks have become these fetish objects, these like ideals to fight for. But like they, they don't give a shit about the Starks. 
it, that's why, like, for example, what we know now about what Arnulf Karstark is really doing there and what we learn, obviously, from the Alice Karstark stuff going on. And we're like, wait a second, isn't this guy, isn't he kind of a jerk from what I've heard? And then you realize, looking back at the speech, what does he say? He says, for the young wolf who was so cruelly slaughtered. No, he didn't give a fuck that he was so cruelly slaughtered. He's like, uh, almost like the Walder Frey of this situation. His grandson and sons are there, and Justin is actually mm-hmm. pressing this conversation. He's like, so what are you going to do when you get to Winterfell? Like, what are you, you going to do, snowball them? You know, just throw snowballs at them? And the grandson and sons are like, we'll cut trees to make rams and ladders. And Justin's like, no, logically, you'll die in the cold, or they'll kill you by then. And Justin here is actually calling them out on all of this because he's like, this sounds really nonsensical, you guys. Do you hear yourselves talk? And they're like, no, no, it'll be fine. Arnulf was cackling, the text says. They're in on a joke that we're not in on, is what it is. They obviously are in on a joke we're not in on, and it really shows when you look back. He's like, uh, he's got like, it's the dark version of Big Bucket Bull's speech. It's a perversion of it, and we Again, we already know that Arnulf is a traitor. It's also a counterpart to to Wyman Man- Manderley's speech, right? Because Wyman Manderley also delivers a speech that seems alongside the interests of those that he's with, and then he has his own little inside joke, right? Just as Arnulf Karstark does here. As we know, he's a traitor to Stannis' cause, but... Uh, you know, as you were saying, right, with the Starks and what they've become, the speech shows how easily the quest for glory and vengeance on behalf of the Starks, it, it's being perverted, right? It's being used against the interests of many of these Northmen. They've, they've become this sort of symbol, detached from who they are. And what I find interesting about Justin's character, uh, as Chloe was saying, right, he's being like, what is going on? crazy pills are we all taking crazy pills what what are you eating <laughs> right i thought we were eating horses okay not crazy pills and that's why he's so disliked by many of the men characters like we see from other men and from some of the men's povs he's not very much liked by any of them whereas he is quite liked it seems like well enough right by asha and even alisan mormont who is not amongst those who are stamping and shouting for glory she's not even in the hall right now right Justin's not motivated by this glory, and neither are Asha or Alisan. We see throughout the story that this this desire for glory at any cost is really wrapped up in ideas of toxic masculinity throughout Westeros. Justin, though, is more motivated by survival and self-preservation, and maybe self-preservation too far, right? As we see in his exchange in Theon's Winds of Wind Winds of Winter chapter with Stannis, and it can come off as really distasteful and really slimy at times, and that's what the men see of him as opposed to this pragmatism. There's both, right? But we know that he's right here because we've been in Winterfell through Theon's chapters, and again, we know that Karsark is setting a trap because of Jon's chapters, and so Justin ends up actually being the voice of reason here, not only against the Northmen's fervor, but also when it comes to like this crazy southern wanton burnings as well. And he embodies in a way, I think, and echoes Balin Greyjoy's advice to Asha that, you know, it's better to surrender and live another day to rise again. But it was Balin's hunger for glory that did him in. And it's something that Asha had questioned, because after all, that appeared to that appeal to glory and power that Karstark is channeling here. And again, it's a dark version of some of those other speeches, Big Bucket Bull's speech, and is very much the same strategy that Euron used 
to win the king's moot over Asha. Yeah, well, speaking of the king's moot, actually, yes. like Justin is actually Asha in this case. He's Asha in the king's moot because you know, uh, Euron shows up and he's like, oh, "I'm going to get you this and this and this and this, and then we're going to get th- we're going to score these bitches, and we're going to get money, you know, fuck bitches, it's going to be great." And then you know, like Victorian's like, "I'll get you everything. Balon will get you," which is actually jack shit. Which is seriously one of the funniest moments in this whole entire series, by the way. It's like, that's like one of the things that makes me laugh so freaking hard. Whatever you had with Balon, you can expect from me. Oh, great. Yeah, <laughs> true. That's awesome. Uh, and then Asha shows up with her with her chest filled with like pine cones and turnips and shit and rocks. And, and she's like, here, this is what you're going to get. You're going to fucking get. Like, if you keep listening to these idiots, this is the same goddamn thing. So, yeah. We get a confrontation between Richard Hort and Justin Massey, uh, because Justin Massey speaks out and says, are all you Karstarks mad? And Horp reminds him, hey, we only have one god here. He says gods be good. And Horp is like, excuse me? We only worship one red demon god here. Just kidding. Uh, we worship one god and everyone else's demons. And he says that only the Lord of Light can save us now. Wouldn't you agree? And... Justin basically says, I, my faith runs as deep as your own. You know that. And he says, it's not your courage. It is your courage, I question, Justin, not your faith. Because Justin, he says, has been preaching defeat since Deepwood Mott. Justin turns red and he angrily leaves after his faith has been questioned, saying he won't stay here and be insulted. And he runs off. And guess who also ran off after a speech questioning everybody's dreams of glory? (laughs) Asha. Yeah, because she's like, well, I'm not going to stay in the room where everyone hates me and the one person who doesn't <laughs> just left. Oh, she's like, mm, peace out. Uh, and as as just, yeah, as she leaves, uh, there's this great yeah, line of imagery that I wanted to call out because I think it's a perfect way to encompass everything that's happening in this chapter and even some of the previous chapters. And that line is, a blast of cold air blew through the hall raising ashes from the fire trench and fanning its flames a little brighter. And that's exactly what's happening here, right? Like the winter storms coming through the camps, it's fanning the flames of anger between all the different factions that make up Stannis' army uh, even brighter against one another. It's also fanning the flames of desperation among the southern men who won't just fucking put on like the bear paws. And it's fanning the flames of bloodlust among the northern men who are so blinded right now and as these chapters make clear, it's also very much fanning the literal flames of R'hllor and people seeking a sign that their faith is going to be rewarded. Asha thinks, broken quick as that, my champion is made of suet. Yeah, it's toughness again, by the way. That's what she's judging, yeah. Yeah, like, it's toughness again. She's, yeah. she's judging a lot of people on their toughness in this chapter, which is really freaking funny because... Like, you're not tougher than a lot of these people. In fact, you in fact, you fled from your home, Asha, yourself, after giving a speech wondering if everybody's gone completely nutso. And to that's... be fair, she has nothing else to do but judge people right now. She has nothing else to do that's with her true. life, okay? I'm just saying. Yeah, she's, she's on the DVD commentary just going, he was a bitch, he was a bitch, he was a bitch. This is how she's conserving her energy, you know? She's trying not to burn too many carbs, so she's just quietly judging people. That doesn't take that much. Yeah, this is her hobby now. That's all she has. Um, speaking of DVD commentary and the meta, I do sometimes wonder when Stannis looks in the flames, is, he, is that him staring into the camera? <laughs> oh, 
for hours. I think so. Yeah, like, what is happening? That or out the window, That's yeah. him. Uh, but right now, Asha yeah. also, again, she's rising. She's putting on her own cloak and saying, Peace out, everyone! Goodbye! Falls just out into the blizzard. Within ten yards, she's like, fuck. I'm lost in the blizzard now. She calls out for Justin, gets no answer. Here's only, interestingly, a horse wicker off to her left. So she pulls her cloak tighter, stumbling back to the village and passing the corpses. And the chains on them had cooled, which is great, I guess, but it's still wrapped around the burnt flesh, and a raven is perched upon one of the bodies, eating. Oh, wow, it's like a feast for crows, but ravens. Uh, she watches the snow, thinking that the old gods mean to bury them, and that this was not their work. Clayton Soggs is the worst, and he shows up. He is absolutely the worst. Shows up to ruin her already shitty day, and he's like, you'd look real pretty when you're roasted. Do squid scream? Squid roasted is good. Anyways. Uh, and she thinks... <laughs> God of my fathers, if you can hear me in your watery halls beneath the waves, grant me one small throwing axe. The drowned god did not answer. He seldom did. That was the trouble with gods. So real. So real. It's so real. God. But but the trouble with gods yeah. thing is like, yes. that's basically exactly what's being debated from this chapter too. Like, gods don't aren't answering. Even if they're real, they don't care about your shitty problems right now, Stannis. Yeah. Like, they have bigger issues. Yeah. In fact, you're kind of, you're probably yeah, pissing them off. That's true. They're probably like, what are you doing? This is not what I wanted. But. You are an idiot sandwich. <laughs> if only there were a, thro- a god of throwing axes, though, when, like, horrible men were around. The rest of the, the, the passage is perfect because you've got him coming after all of a sudden. And this is, again, what it's about. It's that toxic masculinity because she asks if he's seen Sir Justin and he goes, that prancing fool, what do you want with him, cunt? If it's a fuck you need, I'm more a man than Massey. And she thinks, cunt again? It was odd how men like Suggs used that word to demean women when it was the only part of a woman they valued. And Suggs was worse than Middle Little. When he says the word, he means it. Yep. Yep. This is like a serious indicator. There are some men all allowed to speak to me, right? Like only a yeah. few. And Clayton Suggs would not no. be one of them. The difference with like Middle Little, like Middle Little is mad respectable. He reminds me of Strax from Doctor Who. Wendy, you might know that reference. I don't know. Do you like Doctor Who? Yes. I, I, I like okay. a few seasons of Doctor Who. I have fallen off the Doctor Who wagon. I barely remember any of it. I am not caught up right now, but there is a character named Strax who is a Santaran, a Santaran nurse who, like, he straight up is always like, it would be my greatest honor to defeat you in battle someday on the field. And, like, he does not care about anything you do, but he does want, you know, respectably to defeat you in battle. And that's that's mad respectable. That's what Ash is into. Middle Little's like, hey, heat of the battle, you know, but a battle's a battle. And she's like, yeah, true that, Middle Little, true that. And I really like that, but I don't like Suggs. No. He would not be allowed to speak in my no. presence. I don't know if anyone he likes him. Maybe Godry Faring, but I'm not convinced that Godry Faring actually likes Clayton. No, Suggs. he's just a big mean bully. Asha reminds Clayton that Stannis actually gelds men for rape, and he chuckles at her. He tells her Stannis is half blind from staring into fires, staring into the camera, but that she shouldn't fear because he's like, I won't rape you because then I would have to kill you afterwards. What? What? Because that's yeah. a fucking rational thought. 
I'd well, rape you, but I'd have for to a good kill guy you. like Clayton Suggs. Sorry. Yeah, that's basically what. Um, I enjoy a good mm. kill after a rape, so I get it. You know, I understand. We are being Clayton so Suggs hashtag problematic right now. To me, Asha uh, interrupts Clayton's wonderful prose that he's speaking to her, right? His poetry that he's giving her. And she's like, do you hear that noise? And he's like, what noise? It sounded like a horse, actually more than a horse. She listens and she's trying to hear it against the snow. And he's like, this is some squid game until suddenly he hears it. And he's like, it's riders. Does he, sometimes I'm like, does he really think she's a squid? <laughs> like he keeps calling her squid. Like, should we just call you pig all the time? Clayton sucks. But anyway. All the Westerosi think they're their sigils, Eliana. Yeah. Oh. Uh, I will say something that I love about this scene mm-hmm. is that it shows us how experienced Asha is as a warrior, right? Because her senses are actually trained to be ready. She's honed them even to an extent in this kind of weather or like when there's a lot of noise in general, it's difficult to figure things out probably because of waves and shit. So she notices the sounds of horses and she's like, that's pretty weird. Whereas Sir Clayton Suggs is so busy doing, I don't know, some dumbass shit right now that and probably has done most of his killing in dungeons or something like that, or after battle, right? And not an actual battlefield. Most of his seducing, too. Right. <laughs> so he doesn't notice the horses at first, unlike Asha, who's like, wait, shut the fuck up, you idiot. What is happening? She doesn't say that, but yeah, in, my, in her hearts, she did. And I love that he literally didn't believe it until like they're upon them. Like, shut up. Shut up, Clayton. Uh, and, and so Northmen emerge. They're bulky by their furs and their swords and their axes and warhammers. And she can't really make out any of the shields, the arms on them. And uh, she feels naked, she thinks. She says, for all her layers of wool and fur and boiled leather, Asha felt naked standing there. A horn, she thought. I need a horn to rouse the camp. That's funny since Victorian also is working on a horn in the next chapter. Horny chapter. Horns again. There's lots of horns. Like there's the dragon mm. horn. There's the dragon horn. We're horny. There's the horn of winter. Yeah, so horny. It is finally. It is a horny chapter once again. Clayton. Clayton calls her a stupid cunt and tells her to run and warn the king that Lord Bolton's upon them. Uh, and he gets out in the snow, ready to face the enemy. And it turns out, though, that he's wrong, because the enemy actually isn't there to fight. There's too many to be scouts, too few to be a vanguard, and. Two are dressed in the blacks of a Night's Watch. Asha calls out, asking who they are, and hears a familiar voice respond. It's Christopher Botley saying that they looked for them at Winterfell, but found only crow food umber beating drums and blowing horns. He takes a knee, saying the maid is here as well. Aw. And all six of her men, Crom, unfortunately died of wounds, so they're Aww. no longer the ragged nine. Clayton doesn't understand how the Ironborn got loose from the dungeons, and Triss explains Sibel Glover was given a very handsome ransom for their freedom in the name of the king. Also, the Ironborn, like the Northerners, are made of different stuff. I'd just like to put that out there, Clayton. Yeah, the another cultural like similarity there. Yeah. Because they have they have first men roots. They all have first men roots too. Like, you know what? I mean, they- Ironborn suck, but no one sucks as bad as Clayton. I, yes. Though I do wonder if, like, the the idea where Asha thinks that he's a courageous asshole facing the enemy, is that, like, a, supposed to sort of harken back to Waymar Royce, who is not not nearly as bad as Clayton Suggs. Not even, like, bad at all, just, like, spoiled whatever. But anyways, I, I, I think that... Yeah. But still, dance with me then. Still the same thing. He was ready. Exactly. And I think we're getting that supposed to come through in that theme, 
But uh, yeah, as you said, the Ironborn, like the Northerners, made of different stuff. And it, it's because the Ironborn, right, put faith in their leader in Asha, just as the Northmen put their faith in, they put the, put it in the Starks, who, uh, though they have become, uh, their, their image and name has become perverted, right? Because leaders like the Starks or leaders like Asha, they were willing to self-sacrifice. Asha, when they're all first captured, is willing to sacrifice herself for their safety. And they have faith in in that leadership, whereas a part of now I'm realizing the burnings that are happening here from the Queensmen are because they don't have faith in Stannis. They're tr- looking for anything to have any light, any faith in this storm, and they're turning to R'hllor because they don't believe that Stannis can take care of them. Yeah, Clayton's uh, conversation made that really apparent for me reading that. Like, Clayton quite obviously does not give a shit about Stannis as ruler. He just gives a shit about his position while Stannis is ruling. Absolutely. And that's part of why he's like, I can't imagine why anyone would pay for sea scum and the man who paid for them steps forward. He's tall, thin, long-legged, and queerly halted. It's queerly hatted. It's Tycho Nestorius, and he explains that he was looking for an escort safely to the king, and he must speak to the king at once. And I will say, Mark Gaddis did a- he was fine as Tycho Nestorius. Uh, my casting would be Joel Stouffer, aka Enoch, in the Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. Suggs asks, who in the seven stinking hill- who in the seven stinking hells are you? Who- what are you- what do you mean the humble servant of the Iron Bank of Bravos is here? And Nosh is like- Am I taking crazy pills? <laughs> what, what is happening? Her reaction is basically like kind of laughing at there being a Iron Bank of Bravo's person there. And it's it harkens back to John a little bit. Yes. Because of the way he handles the Iron Bank. And how he uses the fact how ill-suited these guys are to being there uh, to his advantage. Yes. And there's not mm-hmm. a lot of respect for the Despite how much the Iron Bank is needed. Because the Iron Bank really does loom large over everything. Despite yes, uh, but no one takes him seriously at the same time. Yeah, the actual like men of it, and it's really interesting to see that because they show up like absurd fairy godmothers in the middle of like blizzards, and everyone's like, "Whoa, hello, <laughs> what are you doing here in the middle of uh, this storm that they didn't seem to have that much trouble getting through?" And it, it, this is where you get a sense of how far Asha has traveled because she recognizes Tycho's hat is from the Free Cities from when she herself has been to Tyrosh. So we're like, oh, she's been there. All right. Yeah, she advises the Bravosi. She's like, oh, well, Stannis' new seat is at the Watchtower and Clayton! Clayton's gonna leave! He's gonna go with you and <laughs> take you to him! <laughs> <laughs> I love that she gets her power back. Like, as soon as... This happens, and I know Eliana, I think, is going to talk about this later. Like, she gets her groove back a little. She's like, okay, well, some of my boys are here. Some of them are dead, but some of my boys are here. And she's like, Clayton, go suck off over there. And he thanks her, and he's like, you must be Lady Asha of House Greyjoy. She responds, I'm Asha of House Greyjoy. Opinions on my ladyhood differ. And he smiles and says that he has a gift for her that he found at Winterfell with Moore's Umber. A girl and an old man, thought Asha, as the two were dumped rudely in the snow forest. The girl was shivering violently, even in her furs. She had not been so frightened. She might have been pretty, though the strip of her nose was black with frostbite. The old man, no one ever would ever think him comely. She had seen scarecrows with far flesh. His face was a skull with skin, his hair bone white and filthy, and he stank. Just the sight of him filled Asha with revulsion. He raised his eyes. 
Sister, see, this time I knew you. Ash's heart skipped a beat. Dion? His lips skinned back what might have been a grin. His Half his teeth were gone, and the half of those still left to him were broken and splintered. Theon, he repeated. My name is Theon. You have to know your name. <laughs> it's so good. I had, like, tears in my eyes when I first oh, reread it, so I was just like, oh god, I forgot how emotional it is. It's the best. It's it's so emotional, all right? It's the biggest fist pump moment in the whole no. story. It's been building up to this moment for a whole book. Something that got me emotional, though, other than Theon in that, was that Asha thought Jane could have been pretty. They all said I was pretty. They all said I was pretty. <laughs> I'm so sad about oh, both of them. That did her in. It's okay. <sighs> That's it. That's the last Asha Greyjoy chapter that has been published yet. That, that wasn't taken from an enlarged screen capture on George's word star. It's an excerpt. Okay. It's not an excerpt. <gasps> Anything's an excerpt. Okay, you know what was an excerpt? Those four men that ate the guy's body. Lord Fell's body, that was an excerpt. Okay, Eliana? God. It's an excerpt if I say it is. <sighs> Asha Greyjoy. Asha Greyjoy. I don't know. I've got some thoughts on uh, Asha Greyjoy. And I don't know. Uh, let's open the floor to some overall endgame and wins a winner kind of thoughts about Asha. There's kind of an open book ahead of us, right? What if Stannis is looking at her not as a potential sacrifice in the respect of killing her? He doesn't have a son. Mm. All right. What if he's looking at her because she uh, being a, a wanted bride is kind of a thing that keeps happening to Asha as well, not just in terms of like her forced marriage, but also because uh, like at one point, Victorian, when she talks about ruling beside him, he thinks that she means to become his queen. And like her being a pursued bride keeps coming up with her. Uh, there's also Christopher Botley. And I can't help but think about that. It might strengthen his own blood. There's going to be the blood of two kings and an heir they make together. It just popped into my head. What if that's going to be a thing? I think it's an interesting idea and I kind of like it. It might be something that he's thinking. I, I, I do agree. I think that's an interesting thought. And it makes another way that Stannis is living in his brother's shadow, right? Because wasn't there a threat of Renly trying to put aside Robert's current wife? Yeah. In order to set up another another marriage. So I think that's really interesting. I just don't think that Stance is gonna have any time to think soon. Just because like I mean something that What if he's already thinking of it? Yeah, maybe he's thinking of it, because we'll never know, right? We don't get his actual direct thoughts, but he might actually be thinking that. That might be what he's thinking, or worrying that fuck, I've gotta set her aside and do this. But that's the other thing is I don't think these southern men would be okay with that necessarily. A lot of them came in support of House Florent in support of Stannis. Not a, all of them, obviously. A lot of these are Stormlanders. But I just know there's definitely some support for Selyse because she is... I mean, look at the what their face is. Garrick, what's-his-face, in the wall with his redhead kid that he gets married off. And Selyse is like, look, I made a marriage at the <laughs> wall, teehee. I now rule all the free folk. Uh, I think that he... I just don't, I don't know. I don't know. 
I also don't know if having a kid right now, like, is his first thought, like, maybe for after the war and everything. But I also don't think he thinks he's going to win again. You know what I mean? Like, I don't think he thinks he's going to win this. I think at this point he's like, fucking, we'll try or we'll die. The reason why, like, it popped into my head, really, is just because, like, we were talking about, like, you know, what it's so up in the air what he wants to actually do with Asha. Mm -hmm. It really, it genuinely is, I feel like. Um, he, I feel like if he wants to keep her, obviously he's thinking of her as a hostage right now too, Mm -hmm. potentially, potentially valuable in that respect. And it like, it's kind of up in the air with what she's doing. And also like the way she keeps thinking of herself, that as as strong as she is and as tough as she is, she keeps being reduced back to potential bride. Mm -hmm. That's why, you know, she's the wayward bride. One of her first thoughts in this chapter is, I'm not a pampered maiden who blah, blah, blah. I'm not, like, somebody who just who just gets married off or anything. Like, well, she doesn't say that, but, you know, she's not, like, I'm not just a pro- pampered maiden. It emphasizes how much of a warrior she is and everything. But she's still being reduced to that by, like, everybody around her so often mm-hmm. <laughs> might be something that just keeps happening to her, no matter, like, how strong she is, no matter how smart she is, no matter how worthy she is. I think that's the dilemma, right, for Asha, for all of us here today um, as women. But I I think what you're saying about her being reduced to that wayward bride is really interesting. It's something that when you reflect upon the titles of Asha's chapters in this book, it's so different from, and even in the Feast for Crows, right? Despite all of the power that Asha feels that she has, despite her being able to navigate uh, the realm of men in a way that's equal to them for the most part amongst the Iron Men, her, the titles of her chapters are never Asha Greyjoy, right? They're never just Asha. They're always in relation to other men, the Kraken's daughter, right? Not her herself being the Kraken. As you said, the wayward bride. Then the king's prize, what value she holds to this other man. And then finally the sacrifice, what do the queen's men want of her? And what what is a common term for... Uh, a bride, like a wanted bride, a bri- uh, a marriage prize. Yeah, so I I think that's a really astute observation about the the big problem that Del- that Ash is having, and it's something that her aunt has struggled with, mm-hmm. as we see. Um, maybe even her own mother, as uh, her mother tries yep. to figure things out, and it's something that happens to a that all the women within A Song of Ice and Fire are, are trying to gain that sort of agency, that sort of control over their own story. We see Cersei really trying to get that herself and Asha as well. Um, but she's sort of calmer about it. Not not calmer. She she she's got more a little more agency herself. That's a parallel with Sansa too. Yes. By her own father, by her captors, by the people who are gonna help her, by the guy who saves her from King's Landing, you know, she keeps being bopped around as a marriage prize, and I don't think that's going to end for her either. I think that's going to keep happening, and I think it's going to keep happening for Asha, uh, and it's just fucking miserable. I will say that the prospect of an Asha-Stannis marriage alliance, from her own cultural standpoint, and from the standpoint of, as we see, the Greyjoy family trauma, and the trauma of the Ironborn, I'm not sure how well it would go over 
because of the history from the Great Joy Rebellion, the Baratheons are seen as this menace that looms over their society, as these people who came, who destroyed everything for them, and Theon's still traumatized. But I think Asha, Asha, Asha thinks that through in her POV. We see her think, like, this isn't an, an advantageous marriage alliance for me, and I think she would consider that. Out of the Ironborn, she's probably the most politically astute. True. Absolutely. No, I, I, like I said, I don't think it's going to happen. I think it's going to be proposed, though. Yeah, I'm not sure how uh, they'll be able to backtrack with, like, the idea of burning Theon and then marrying, like, the proposal of, like, why don't you marry Asha? I think uh, it's going to be one or the other just for time's sake. I think the next, as we know, the next big thing is that's what's going to happen. But it is an interesting concept. And, you know, especially when you bring in some of the parallels with the North and with, with Asha and Theon, I think that the parallels between Theon and Asha and John and Sansa in this have been so strong with John and Theon being undead, right? And their their names being basically erased. Uh, Theon is Reek. Asha and Sansa are these unlikely female leaders whose claim keeps getting sold out beneath them, as you mentioned, Wendy, for a culture that has never accepted a female leader before. And I think that's why their endgame might actually be very similar and dissimilar in important ways as we go through the books. And there's a lot of merit in what we've been discussing with Reyna versus Asha, Asha's thoughts of never being a queen again in the last chapter were really significant. I don't think the people who follow Asha wish to be ruled over by a direct king or queen, uh, but her leadership and command has been unparalleled and inspiring in this story. So most of the male POVs we encounter, I mean, they're struggling to keep power, and Asha still has this ragged band of people who are like, nope, she's got the right way. She's the way for our people. Reyna and Asha both commanded a considerable team for not being true queens of everything, right? They were black brides under Magor's reign, Euron's reign. Reyna has a court that welcomed her as a queen in the West, much like Asha with Ten Towers. And it just feels really significant. I mean, their biggest differences is what? Like, Reyna's really way more gay than, than Asha is, you know? That's about it, canonically. And... Asha, I think, might actually end up joining the Northern Territory. I think she has a lot of similarities with the Northerners that we're meeting. Uh, her relationship with Alisane feels very prominent for a reason. Sansa's mm -hmm. camp is starting to look more and more female for the end Game of Thrones, right? The Mormonts, Alice Karstark, Willa and Winifred, the list goes on and on. And Like all the close allies she's getting in the Vale are female. Yes, Miranda Royce, Anya Wainwood, uh really good, really good alliances. And the future of the North is looking pretty female. But there's something that I think is worth to discuss that Sea Dragon Point, as Asha pointed out, it has the same opportunity as the New Gift. No one lives at Sea Dragon Point. It's a wasteland. And the New Gift is the same way. If John and Sansa, their focus is going to be settling the New Gift, if Theon survives, I don't think he will. Uh, Asha, at least, I would say, will likely maybe settle Sea Dragon Point for herself and her people. I could see her ruling justly and righteously under the North there, and I think it would also close the loop and tie together kind of what the Ironborn owe the Northerners that they raided for so long of off of right there, off of Sea Dragon Point, as Alisane has been telling her, like, do you not get what your people have done to my people for ages here at Sea Dragon Point where I live? Like, you guys came to our house, to our homes, to our land, and raided and raped and murdered us. Uh, and I think that Asha could make a difference in the way that the Ironborn live and how they live and peacefully like live in Sea Dragon Point and start a whole new little mini society for them. And I could see that being possible with kind of the respect that could come from Theon and Asha between the Ironborn and the Starks, right? Yeah. And I, I will point out that 
regarding Alicine, right, and and their discussions of the sins that Asha's people have committed against her, it to Asha's credit, she never gets defensive about it. She's never like trying to justify it. She's like, "Wow, you're right. I really understand what you're saying." She never says it aloud, but she accepts like, "Of course, this is why they don't like us." And it's something that I am sure Asha understands from what's happened to her own people, and I think that creates a great common point for both of these people to meet to eventually perhaps have a sort of treaty build a sort of peace in the future that they can see eye to eye that like yes there's bad blood between us much of it might be caused by our raids but it, it, it becomes a place of respect to jump off from just settling bad blood is just the thing that's going to have to happen because really stannis is not that He's coming in, and I know he's not raiding, technically, but he's coming in, he's asking the Northerners to shed, like, one of the most important parts of their identity. Just, he's planning on burning shit, and Ash has been, from the very beginning, trying to settle some kind of understanding, perhaps, or cooperation, perhaps. Like, even from the very beginning, when she was in, in perhaps at the height of her power in the North, mm-hmm. she was trying to do that. And it's going to come back, most likely... Uh, leader that she's going to meet up with are John and Sansa, who both know a lot about negotiating and settling cooperation between people with bad blood between them. Since it, the North is going to have to accept the wildlings, and if they're going to have to accept the wildlings, there's not going to be a lot of justification for, uh, at least on a like purely political level, it's not going to be a lot of justification for not accepting help from the Ironborn. Yeah, and yeah. I think that's part of what you were saying, right? That's something that would make a marriage alliance with Asha on Stannis' part, quite desirable that they have a fleet. But, uh, yeah, Stannis is coming in, trying to get people to lose part of their culture. And, I mean, I will say, part of what made the Targaryens so successful in their conquest of Westeros, besides the whole dragon part, is that they didn't do that. They didn't ask people to shed their cultural identity. They were the ones who assimilated and converted. As opposed to Stannis, who's like, what if we just burned all of your other religions and beliefs? Um, anyway... Something else that's interesting in this chapter that, alright everyone, if you haven't read the Theon Winds of Winter chapter, we are going to get into deeper spoilers from that chapter now. So if you don't want to hear that, I don't know, skip forward, I'm going to give a guesstimate, five minutes, who knows? Um, Probably. There's a lot of ramifications for the Ironborn that suddenly arrive in this chapter. Uh, besides just Theon reappearing and being like, whoa, shit, Theon's alive, another player enters the game, right? Because before Asha was a mere prisoner here in Stannis' camp, right? She couldn't meet with Stannis or advise him in anything. She met him once, shot her shot, fucked it up a little by bringing up Robert. And, but now suddenly she has more power because she has her own followers and men here, and they are all capable warriors nonetheless. So with Theon's arrival, there's another who also has King's blood. Not just Asha. And that blood is something... It's not just King's blood. That blood is greatly wanted by the Northmen who are like, what What if we got revenge on this guy? This guy right here. So he suddenly showed up. And so Asha has found herself now all of a sudden in a position to bargain. And we see her use it to try to protect her brother, Theon, from the fate that the Queen's men wanted for her, which is the burning. Now that she has her own, not a Queen's men. And... She tries to ransom her brother from Stannis at first in Theon's chapter. And then she tries to do what the Peasbury man does, 
the Peasbury Sergeant, and goads Stannis into executing Theon via beheading in the fashion of the North rather than burning him. Because she's like, that that wasn't a cool way to go. That that was actually really terrible. And this time she's smarter in the way that she does it. Whereas before she unintentionally kind of angered Stannis by appealing to the memory of his brother. This time she uses that sort of anger and annoyance. She, she's starting to like catch on, right? And she's more skillful and channels the memory of like, well, Ned Stark would have done it this way. And she realizes, oh, Stannis is like really jealous maybe of Ned Stark. So Ned would have done it like this, uh, maybe trying to get Stannis to do that. And that dynamic between Asha and Theon, and that tension between sacrifice, and that Asha suddenly has the means to exercise diplomacy, because now she has power, as, first of all, her men, A, as we said earlier, are more seasoned fighters, probably, than the many of the men in Stannis' camp. They're also doing better in that they weren't starving for, like, several weeks, right? As opposed to the Southerners. They came. Notice that the Queensmen, Sully's, the Queensmen are, the current Queensmen are deflating. And her men They've arrived. been deflated. They're yeah. already deflated. They're deflated. And, the que- and uh, Ash's Queensmen have arrived, which I think also serves my theory, by the way. Yeah, so so they're one queen replacing another. They're not as starved, and they also got here way faster because they had the guidance of the Night's Watch. We're like, whatever. It's a fucking snowstorm. What my job is literally riding through blizzards all the time, and now she can use that in her position to change <laughs> things in the camp. And also, that means that we are not going to have Clayton Suggs probably cornering her alone anymore. Not unless he wants to die, which you know I'm fine with. That could happen, and I'd be like super jazzed. You know, to circle it back around to what we were talking about in the first Asha episode with Ariane and Asha's similarities, this reminds me a little bit of Ariane. Ariane is going to marry Aegon and get a seat at the Uh. table, right? Uh, She's going to use that pussy to have her seat at the war table. Because as we know from this next John Connington chapter, he does not think very highly of Dornish princesses, right? Like, we know he's kind of a racist asshole. Um, And Ariane's going to have to marry him. She's going to have to marry to get that seat at the table. And Asha got lucky. Her men showed up and now she gets that seat at the table. And I hope it's enough, right, to avoid a sacrifice for either of them. I think it's pretty clear Theon will not be sacrificed by Stannis because Bran will have to at least somehow intervene. He already is in Theon 1. In Theon 1, we hear in The Winds of Winter, uh, the ravens, the maester's ravens are hopping around and flapping in their cages and... They say, the tree, one squawk, the tree, the tree, the tree. And the second one screams, Theon, Theon, Theon. And Theon smiles and thinks they know my name. No, they're Bran. We know that's Bran. Let's be real. It's worthwhile to mention that Stannis is going to be plagued by Stark children till his bitter end in the next book. First, it's going to be somehow Bran is back, probably, or Rickon is back, or Sansa's here. Uh, Every time Stannis is like, I'm finally the king of everything, and the North is mine, and they follow me, it's gonna be a new Stark interrupting, and Jon comes back to life and takes his thunder from him. Hell, he's sending a crew to Braavos, where Arya is. Damn it, Stannis, every corner you turn, you're plagued by this last name, Stark. And that's the other thing from Theon 1 we learn, is that they know where Stannis is now. The Northerners know where Stannis is, and they're coming. 
Um, like I mentioned earlier, I won't go into the specifics of Cantus's theory about the night lamp that he builds off of a lot of stuff that Brendan B. Fish has also talked about, but Stannis definitely has to have a plan. Uh, the idea is that they're going to make kind of a commotion and burn down the big weirwood out on that little island with the holes in the pond around it. And he also talks about how Stannis might possibly do something that he doesn't even know has been done already in his own kind of world and switch and burn Arnulf disguised as Theon or burn possibly the cadaverous Ormond Wild disguised as Theon since Theon kind of looks like a little old man right now and smuggle Theon out. I thought those were kind of some interesting options. I had never really thought of that, that he could pull a switcheroo. But it'll be interesting in general. Like I, Asha's going to end up being our lens for a lot of this stuff. Uh, so will Theon, but we know that Asha will um, as well. Uh, so it'll be- And Asha's going to be a better- equipped to actually notice things anyways yeah yeah because the winds of winter chapter with theon is layered in eight layers of ptsd we have covered it before on patreon kind of want to do it again we keep talking about doing it again because there's so much to glean in between kind of yeah the, the ptsd ridden pages that theon is you know every other passage he's freaking out about ramsey being called bastard you know but there is information between that but it's very sad like very sad yeah and and yeah, Asha is following along with all of this, and as you said, more astute, ready to observe things, and probably actually possible. While Theon is a bargaining chip, Asha is a better bargainer. As we could say, she's she's going to be go for pawn to player. Yeah, she knows politics again. Whoa. She's not weak at politicking. Wow. Uh, she knows them very well. Yes. Yes, yes. And, you know, we see her, as we kind of discussed, she actually reads the books in her uncle's layer of books, where Ariane gets trapped in a tower with books and does not. I mean, I will be... Okay, so I'm torn, because on one hand, I would have read the books because I would have been bored out of my mind. But I understand being a spiteful child and not doing the thing I was told to do purely out of spite. <laughs> I could see that. I only liked reading, so <laughs> if you put me in a room with a book, like that's fine. That's what I would do. But I, I spent so much it. time on the toilet as a yeah child. <laughs> as a child. Oh well, that wraps up Asha Greyjoy in a Song of Ice and Fire. Wendy, we are so glad you got to come on with us today. Thank you so much for bringing us your wonderful insights. I know that times suck because of the old pandemic and we don't get to see each other as much now and don't have fun con time or visits in your city. So thank you for hanging out with us and please tell us where we can find you on the internet for everyone to click, click, click and Download your stuff. Okay, uh, well, you can find some of my old meta under the Meadow Repost Project on uh, wendynerdwrites.tumblr.com. You can find me shitposting on Twitter, uh, uh, twitter.com slash thewendynerd. And you can find me cursing a lot on Twitch, um, <laughs> on Twitch TV, twitch.tv slash wendynerd. My email, if you want to shoot me an email, is thewendynerd at gmail.com. And, uh, yeah, that's pretty much it. I'm not much on Reddit, so... So, uh, yeah, so uh, twitter.com slash thewendynerd, thewendynerd at gmail.com, wendynerdwrites.tumblr.com, and twitch.tv slash wendynerd. No the there. Awesome. Well, we will talk with you soon. Thanks again. As always, 
If you are interested in hearing what we post on social media or sending us an email about the episode, feel free to exercise that over at Twitter at Girls Gone Canon, C-A-N-O-N, or on Gmail, girlsgonecanon at gmail.com. Yes, and of course, you can always find us here, whatever your podcast listening platform is, but here are a couple of suggestions of where you can find us. Podbean, where we host everything, Google Play, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Acast, Spotify, Overcast, uh, uh, iHeartRadio, Pandora, we've got new ones, Amazon, yeah, we're on Amazon Podcasts, what is it called? Just Amazon Casts? Yeah, something like that. It's on its Amazon Music. There's a podcast section now, so yes, Jeff Bezos, we owe you our soul. Uh, and hey, this month we are releasing an episode on the free cities like we've been doing for A Song of Ice and Fire. Or this lies. month's episode is on lease. So please head on over, check out Eliana's Lies and My Lease, and uh, that's going to be on patreon.com slash girlsgonecanon for our Patreon special episode this month. As always, I'm Chloe, one of your hosts. And I'm Eliana, another one of your hosts. Thanks for Thank listening. Thank you very much, everyone. Thank you, Wendy, for joining us.